does. All right. So we want to wrap that segment up. Do, do you want me to mention that I'll post them on our Facebook page? Or yeah, or just say something, you know, we will or whatever. Okay. However sure. Okay. Yep. Yeah, oh, shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Oh, JB's, JB's going to hit me if I have him be the cold open like every single episode. I'm just too real, I guess. I just, uh, <laughs> I just let it all out there. So this is what you get. You didn't know what you signed up for. Welcome to episode 16 of the Plastic Posse Podcast, sponsored by Goodman Models, maker of the awesome Super Sandy Blocks. What's up, guys? I'm doing great. I am I am happy to be here and ready to do this. I'm also doing good. Can't complain, I suppose. Yeah, same to me. Tomorrow's Friday, so I'm excited. Hey, not only is tomorrow Friday, which is, you know, the previous Friday to everybody listening to this on opening day. But tomorrow is spring break at the university I work for, so tomorrow's a day off. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. You already got a tea time lined up? It's too cold for a tea time. No, I'm going to go to MRS and buy a model. What you going to get? I'm going to get that 48 scale Ravel reboxing of the uh, of the TIE fighter, the fine molds TIE. Good choice. What's that run? Is it? I, I have no idea in terms About of 55 price. bucks. Okay. Not bad. And in that scale, I think is fine. I'm happy to pay it. Well, if you go on eBay and actually buy one in a fine molds box, you'll pay at least double that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our local hobby shop has the fine molds and I think it's listed at like 95 or a hundred bucks. Pretty steep. Same shit, different box, right? <laughs> Except much. it's good shit, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today we have another supersized episode of modeling goodness for you. We feature a fascinating interview with Luther Davies, who is an accomplished mini painter, graphic designer, and also the owner of the Mighty Brush website. If you are at all interested in figure painting, mini painting, color theory, or you just want to listen to an extremely talented modeler, you won't want to miss this interview. Doug and TJ and John did that. I, I missed out on that, but it's, it's really terrific. You're going to want to stick around for that. I know originally we told you guys we'd have two interviews in the show today, but each one of these interviews turned out so well, we just decided to split them up. So we'll roll the other interview had originally planned into our next episode, and we'll have more details on that later in the show. We wanted to let everybody know that episode 16 of The Plastic Posse is sponsored by Rick Cooper, Steve Schaefer, Terry Wilkinson, and Ray Borman. Thanks a lot, guys. These Posse members used our paypal.me link to help us out, and we really appreciate it, you guys. If you're enjoying our podcast and you'd like to help the Posse, it's really easy. That's right. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com, no WW, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little heart icon. 
You can also access this heart link on any of our podcast episode pages on this site. Just click the little heart and then you can donate any amount you would like. We really appreciate the support. Or if you don't want to donate, that's okay too. You can still support us by taking a few moments to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you may find your podcast. Five stars really help. Uh, get the show out there to more people. And we really appreciate the feedback. As mentioned, we, we take it to heart and we really try to improve on it every, every week. So thank you again. And over to you, Doug. The Plastic Posse is sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the super sanding blocks. If you want to be able to sand with precision, plain edges without rolling over the side, and have more control than with traditional sandpaper or sanding sticks, you need a set of these. You can order your very own set at www.goodmanmodels.com. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Besides the Triple P, there are other great scale modeling podcasts and social media content providers out there, and we think you guys should check them out. We have On the Bench with Dave, Ian, and Julian, Plastic Model Mojo with Mike and Dave, Scale Model Podcasts with Stuart and Friends, The Model Geeks with Darren and the Crew, Just Making Conversation with James and Malcolm, and then we have Sprue Pies with Frets uh, by Stephen Lee, which is a terrific blog, and then we have Jim Bates's A Scale Canadian TV YouTube and blog as well. Hey, can I ask a question regarding um, just making conversation? Um, what the hell is an anorak? <laughs> this was in their seventh episode. No, I think they need to tell me what it is. Don't, you don't tell me. Make them do it. Because they they mentioned it like 37 times in episode seven. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Is this a, is this a language barrier thing? Or is it just – or am I just ignorant? So – I need they they need to explain it to me. It's a cultural thing. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a it <laughs> the other side of the pond type of thing. Yeah. I gotcha. Uh, two cultures separated by a common language. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't, don't don't feel bad. I, like halfway through the episode, I'm like, I gotta know what this means, right? <laughs> <I'm> saying it. <laughs> I'm sitting sitting in my truck before work listening to it. I'm like, oh, let me go ahead and Google this. <laughs> but I will tell you, I I got a real kick out of that episode. It was a lot of fun. Even if I do like trains. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, I wanted to talk to you about um, this week. I was on uh, Facebook, I think over on the critique group, and I found this post by David Hurrigan. Uh, and by the way, he was on On the Bench, episode 107. It's really, really great if you guys uh, want to listen to that. He posted uh, kind of a fascinating question. I wanted to bounce it off of you guys. His question was essentially, what's the aspect of the hobby that you think has improved the most over the last few years? For me, without a second's hesitation, it is glue. When I started building, all I had was crappy globulus tester cement. It did the job, but it went everywhere and left mounds of cement around every seam. And the first time I used Tamiya extra thin cement, it was really a revelation some of the other answers that he got, you know, were the internet, better quality reference materials. I was wondering what you guys would say. JB, what's uh, what's the biggest improvement in the hobby over the last few years, in your opinion? Oh, man, you know, we are truly in the golden age. But if I have to look back to when I started getting into serious modeling, you know, back in the early 2000s, 2001 timeframe to where we are now, the thing that has certainly influenced me the most and that I can point to as something that's grown my that's grown my craft is, is reference material, but modeling reference material. And I am specifically referencing, referencing, referencing material, um, 
It's <laughs> having the ability to read about someone's technique in a very in-depth kind of way. And I and I point to examples of, you know, Mike Rinaldi's tank art. I just got this gorgeous book by Jose Brito covering master scale modeling that looks at both armor, aircraft, and dioramas. And those types of materials that go really in-depth to how, you know, to build and paint scale models, I found is kind of in on a, just another planet than where we were 20 years ago. If I look back and kind of point to what I had then, I had Tony Greenland's Armor Panzer Modeling Masterclass, the first FAQ book from Meg Jimenez, which really started uh, where we are today, and some magazines. But now everything is literally at your fingertips. If you love someone's style, you can get their book and learn how to accomplish it yourself or tweak it. The problem for me is I love everyone's style, so I find myself buying copious amounts of scale modeling books and materials. TJ, what about you? Ooh, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I mean, it, it's also kind of hard for me to answer because I think out of the four of us, I've been in this hobby the least, like time wise. So I, I'm thinking back, just uh, you know, from like 2009, I think is when I started, so, somewhere around there. I mean, obviously, I've seen older kits, but I mean, I, I would definitely have to say that the engineering in kits today is just—I mean, for the most part, they're 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 wonderful. I mean, you know, there's still some turds out there every once in a while, but you know, even some of these smaller like startup modeling companies are are making things in a quality that you know I know, even though I wasn't building them back then, but the far surpasses what the big names were doing 20 years ago, and yeah. you know, in and that goes back to, and of course, you know, all the, the old timers or whatever. Oh, the hobby's dying. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, you you should build these airfix kits that, you know, I built when I was a kid. I'm like, no, why? There's there's so much there's so much good stuff out now. I mean, it, we've talked about it before. Like, I, and me personally, I, I don't want to waste my time on building a crappy kit. You know, just like Mike Rinaldi said in an interview. It's like, my life's too short for that. I've already got more kits than I have. will probably ever build in my lifetime. And I'm not that old, so why waste time on junk when you know now we live in the future and modern technology gives us amazing kits? Doug, uh, you know what? Everybody else stole my answers. Honestly, it's it's the, the we'll t- I'll talk about the ref- reference materials like JB did, but it's it's YouTube for me. It's being able to open up either Uncle Night Shift. Or go to John Bias's page. Go to any of these pages and watch people build, and and they will teach you how they do it. And yeah, it's not like you're going to just use those those techniques and immediately get the same results. But they give you a, a groundwork, a basis for you to go and start from, and learn from, and build on until you're going to get some pretty good results and get them a lot faster than the people that figured this stuff out in the first place. Because you can watch and learn from them, and I just think it's fantastic. Yeah, that's that. That's you know that kind of touches back like um, what Luther was saying too. Like when he he first started, like there was a handful of painters. He named a few, and I was familiar with all of them that were on YouTube. But I mean, now you go on YouTube, and if there's a model of something that you want to build, almost guaranteed someone else has built it and made a model a video out of it. And it may not be the best. It, it may not be world class, but it doesn't have to be either. Like I, I like to find 
kits just and watch people build them. So if they see something that, you know, I know I just talked about how great kits are, but again, not nothing's perfect. You know, if someone sees something in the build and they, you know, that you need to fix or whatever, and they'll, they'll put it in their video. And like, that's invaluable to me. Yeah. You know, TJ, I think you hit on something really important there and it's about, you know, understanding the kit. I'll be honest. I can't stand reviews that are like out of the box review. Let me just write about the kit as I see it on the sprue. But what I find myself doing more and more is those reviews are on YouTube and it's, you know, tangible results that you can understand, hear a person talk through it and actually see it being built and understand, okay, where flaws may be or, you know, what's great about the kit. And that is completely lost in a, you know, 1200 word essay on why this is the best Panzer three out there when the person hasn't even put a, a, a slap of glue on it whatsoever. Yeah. I think some of it boils down to quality. You know, YouTube videos are excellent video quality, you know, 60 frames per second and guys like night shift, the, the camera work they're doing is amazing. And so it isn't just the amount of content and videos that you can see on, on them doing this and they're explaining it to you. It's, you can see it really, really well. And it's the same thing with Facebook and Instagram, where you've got the opportunity now to interact and collaborate with other modelers in a way that we, you know, you can't do from a magazine article, you know, nothing against the kind of old, you know, fine scale modelers and magazines back in the day. But, you know, that's a completely different experience looking at something on a paper page than logging onto Facebook and having a conversation and you know, saying, hey, John, how'd you do that wash? Or, you know, what color did you use to modulate the top of that turret, you know, that on that tank? That's a that's a completely different level of access. Yeah, I uh, I, I learned a bunch of new techniques directly uh, from Duke's models page. Um, his his YouTube channel is is awesome for techniques. And uh, uh, one of my favorites was black basing. And I know, I know not everybody uses black basing, but if I'm doing something a light color, especially a gray, um, like my tie striker, black based. And and I learned that directly from Duke. Scott, I, I was just going to go back and kind of hit on what you said and echo it in a sense where today, not only YouTube, but social media in general, having that at your fingertips and being able to access that modeler is is really powerful. I'll give one example, but you know, there's many more because 99% of modelers are just like all of us here. They're willing to talk about the hobby and they want to expand on it. So Roger Herkmans, he's a, an incredible modeler from, from Europe. And he makes these scenes, these mini dioramas that are just the mind blowing. He's doing an easy eight right now, but he, he had built a Hetzer and I really liked the camouflage pattern on it and the color specifically. So I shot him a quick, you know, Facebook message, hey, I really enjoy this project you're working on. Would you care to share a little bit more about your paint mixes? I mean, within a half an hour, I have the pictures of the bottles he's mixing, the ratios, everything about it. And it's it just really shows the power of social media and connecting with someone. But then also the great side of our hobby where people are willing to share their craft and, and help people grow in their own. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. The other thing I think that I would say uh, in the last few years that we've been really, really fortunate is, you know, to go back to your golden age comment and, and, you know, so many other discussions we've had is the tools that we have on our bench, the quality of the paints and the finishing materials that we have. It just, it, you know, it really takes a lot of, in the past, I would spend hours and hours, you know, mixing and 
trying to get ratios correct and, you know, trying to make my own homemade washes out of oil paints. And, you know, a lot of that now we take for granted that we can, you know, just run down to the local hobby store or get online to Andy's Hobby Headquarters and give Patrick a shout. And we have bottles of pre-mixed washes and pigments and all kinds of great stuff that'll be on our bench in no time. So from that aspect, I think we're really fortunate as well. Great discussion, guys. A lot of lot of good points. TJ, what's our uh, social media shout-outs uh, looking like this week? All right. We got a couple of interesting things here that we can talk about. Uh, we're going to start with YouTube. And I found a channel called Sprue Therapy. And uh, obviously, this will be linked um, on our website or on our Facebook page. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly how I came across uh, this channel. I think I found them on instagram funnily enough and just you know he had a a link to his youtube channel he seems pretty new he's only got a couple of videos primarily uh it's all airplanes except for a tie fighter he did the 172nd scale bandai tie and it's it's pretty good and it's probably one of the only it's actually one of the only tie fighter videos on uh on youtube like a full a full video so yeah, so I, I watched other videos, and you know, I'm not much of an airplane guy, as as I'm sure I've mentioned numerous times. But like I've said, I, I like to watch all modeling, so I checked him out. And he's got doing some pretty good work. So if uh, you're over on uh, YouTube, go ahead and search uh, Sprue Therapy and uh, give him a subscription or a follow. Yeah, his channel's really good. I've been a sub for a while. He's he's got good content. Yeah, I just uh, I just subscribed actually. I like his bowfighter build. All right, so uh, my social media shout-out this week is on Facebook, and it's a Facebook page called Soviet Bear Models. This is a page primarily of armor modeling, but also a little bit of figure painting and even some miscellaneous subjects. But this page has unbelievable kind of step-by-step photos, and the level of work is just extremely high. He's working on a project right now. I don't know if you guys have seen, but he's got a World of Tanks chieftain, and he's modeling the World of Tanks paint scheme. And he's right, right now he's kind of wrapping it up and working on the final weathering. Have you guys seen that? Oh, yeah. That's some good stuff there. Yeah, I have as well. I've, I've been following his page for a long time. The, the gentleman's out of the UK named Daniel Brooker, and his his work is great. He's a big kind of you know, fantasy guy when it comes to armor modeling, they're largely, and I, and I say that in a kind of, you know, a 46 kind of setting where he's taking ideas from the game or just scratch building ridiculously cool vehicles. He's got a Sturmgeschutz five, which is basically like a Stug Panther. Um, And I know he's done some masters for paper. I think it's called paper Panzer productions out of the, out of the uh, EU, you know, his work, not only his finishing, but his scratch building abilities are are really great. And he's a super nice guy. Another one where you can reach out to him and he'll he'll talk to you anything you want to learn about his build. So walk you through how to accomplish it. Yeah, I know. Um, in in one of our chats, we we've talked about him and and shared some of his work. And I mean, it's it's fantastic. And I think I even mentioned like I think it was a picture of uh, a close up of a hatch he did on some sort of Russian thing. I think it's like with whitewash and. My comment was like, that's, that's the kind of fidelity of finish that like I dream about achieving one day. And, uh, he just seems to, you know, snap his fingers and and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. His use of layers and different textures, you know, um, tarps that 
aren't obviously there to obscure a, a mistake, you know, scale thicknesses, uh, the right amount of weathering and, and distressing, just every panel, every bolt, you know, every, every welded iron hook on his pieces just look like they should look. Everything looks like it would have a metallic smell if you saw it in real life. Yeah, it's like um like every it seems like every bit on the model is deliberate. You know, like every little tiny scratch or or nick in the paint, like he decided to put that there and it's that's an attention to detail that I know personally I don't really have. That's quite a compliment for sure. Yeah, and you you should go look into some of his historical builds, TJ specifically. He's got a AMX sixty five that was largely scratch built with a three D printed turret that I believe he designed himself, and it, he just nails it. Not only again with top notch construction, but the depth of his finish, as you mentioned, when it comes to each individual scratch, is is methodically placed, no detail spared, and it just has that look where. It's not overweathered at all. It, it it just feels right. It looks it's it's there. That's that's all I can say. So jumping over to Instagram, I'm gonna go with a guy named Peter Smirnov. I believe that hopefully I didn't butcher your last name, but he goes by Scale Cat on Instagram. And it's scale underscore cat. I just happened across him, I think, when I was cruising around looking for accounts on the Plastic Posse Instagram. And I found his work and I was, I, uh, I was intrigued. He does a mix of everything, which I also enjoy. He's got figures and aircraft and armor. And what, what caught my eye was his IDF armor, which it probably like Scott feels the same way. I also really love IDF armor. There's just something about it that is visually appealing. And yeah. he's done a, a couple of them and, and some other stuff too. But that's what I think he did a, a Merkava 2D. And it it was really good. I, I really liked it. So yeah, I gave him a, a follow on on both my personal you know uh, Instagram account and with uh, the Posse's Instagram account. So yeah, it, I was I I was surprised that he should have more followers. I think because I think his level of work is is really high. I'm looking right now. I'm, I'm looking right now at his page. He's got a 30 second scale F16I Sufa, and it's gorgeous. Uh, the yes. Academy kit and it's, it's beautiful. Yep. Yeah. I saw that too. That That's really nice. I, I also like his, uh, his one forty eight flanker. I'm a big fan of the one-to-one ramen. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know what? That's probably one of the best ones I've seen. Like, yeah, yeah. It looks good. When you go to the page and you're looking at his gallery, make sure you check out the Merkava 2D that you were just talking about JB, but he's got a picture of it before it's painted and you can take a look at how he's applied the texture and print and primed everything. And I mean, it's actually gorgeous to look at, even though the entire thing is just different shades of gray. I've, I've got an Instagram one that I found yesterday. I don't know if you've seen Rachel Riggs builds on Instagram, rachel.riggs.builds. She's a, a modeler and she's all over the board. She's got She's got aircraft. She's got um, Gundam. She's got some Warhammer stuff. She's did, she's done a whole bunch of different stuff, and I really enjoy her page as well. Oh yeah, I'm checking it out now. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, give her a follow. Oh yeah, yeah, she does. That's that's pretty cool. It's uh, also an interesting uh, selection of subjects. I like the uh, Hello Kitty Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I I do have a soft spot for like uh, the Hello Kitty stuff because 
both my daughters went through a huge Hello Kitty phase. So anytime I see like a Hello Kitty thing, I'm always <laughs> I'm always tickled by it. What I like is she's using traditional scale modeling techniques on her wargaming pieces. We've got one of these uh, Lehman Rust tanks, and she's using the Tamiya putty to do weld beads all the way around the cupolas. And she's using pre-shading on her airbrush work as she you know, brings the finish up. And that's impressive stuff. The exhaust pipe she did on the tanks look look really terrific yeah she's very good very talented hey thanks tj for leading that session uh these will all be posted on our facebook page so you can easily click on them follow share and like well doug what does the mailbag look like we get any feedback this episode it's it's quite quite large again we've got a lot of listener feedback and i will get started uh rick cooper hey guys just finished listening to episode 14 Congratulations on another great session. I was happy to hear the whole gang would be in Vegas this August. I already have my reservation set as well, and I'm trying to save a little bit extra for the vendor room, which would be spectacular. Was wondering if anybody has thought about a get-together anytime during the four days during for the entire posse. Yeah, I think uh, JB's our uh, our cruise director there. He's the he's the one that's going <laughs> to be in charge of our itinerary. But, no, I mean, that sounds like a great idea. What do you guys think? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I like it. I need I need faces to put to names so I can immediately forget them because that's what I do. I, <laughs> so, so am I. Don't worry. <laughs> but I, I'm 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 ready for this. I'm so excited to go down there, Vegas in August. I got my parka ready to go, and you know some better <laughs> boots. Um, okay, we'll j- jump on. We've got uh, Fred. His Instagram is. I paint tabletop. Hi, and thanks for the follow. I immediately checked out your podcast because I like listening to hobby stuff while painting. What can I say? It's episode four already. You guys clearly experts in this hobby, and I love hearing all those tips and also you guys just talking about kits and stuff. Looking forward to all those episodes still to come. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, thanks, man. Awesome. Another Instagram, Matt, Sprue Cutter Models. Hey guys, just finished up the first episode and we'll be working through the backlog over the next couple days. Appreciate the follow. Nice. Brian Schultz. This was y'all's best podcast. Y'all. LOL, didn't know if any of you guys had ever seen this site. Oh, he's got a site for us. This is Rob Perlman. Hey guys, first time commenter, long time listener, etc. I really enjoy your podcast. You guys seem to be getting along well and it's been fun to listen to. You guys asked... Why you don't see a lot of Star Wars dioramas. And I wonder if the accessibility of Bandai kits might be one of the reasons. What I mean by that is Bandai kits are often entryways into the hobby, so you see a lot of folks may feel quite intimidated by the thought of making a diorama. If you're a beginner, you can clean up the nubs, snap the the kits together, maybe do a panel line wash, and you have a very decent kit to put on your shelf. That could definitely be a part of it. Do you guys know if Bandai is planning to reissue any of their excellent Star Wars kits? Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like they are available anywhere. I'd love to get my hands on a Y-Wing, TIE Fighter, TIE Interceptor from the original trilogy, but I can't find them. I really enjoyed your discussion on the of Mojo Rust Buster kits. Yet I think you called them slammer builds. When I get when I got back into the hobby a couple years ago. I got way too excited and bought a bunch of advanced kits with aftermarket. 
After mucking up one or two with my relative inexperience, I've decided to go back to some easier cuts to practice on. My current Rust Buster build is the Tamiya 135th IDF M51 Sherman. While it isn't as quick as a 148, it just falls together. I started building on a Friday night, and I think I put about eight hours into the build so far. I expect to have it finished in maybe another three or four hours and move on to painting. Finally, I'd like to shout out my local hobby shop, Magic Box Hobbies. They carry everything from armor to cars to gunpla to machining Krieger. It's a fantastic store. If you ever in Vancouver, you've got to look it up. Anyways, guys, thanks for the great show and keep up the good work. Wow, awesome feedback, Rob. Well, I can address that Tamiya Sherman that you're working on, the uh, M51. That is a great kit, and you're going to get a I'm sure a great result out of that really fantastic model and one of my favorite Israeli tanks. As far as the Bandai kits, Doug, those are all being reissued, aren't they? I'm not sure about the ties. I haven't seen anything on the tie models, but the Y-Wing is due to be reissued in April, I believe. I've already got a couple on on order, but I uh, did not see the TIE Fighters, either of them on the list, which is too bad because I want them both. I want lots of both of them. Yeah, and with regards to uh, Slammer builds, JB, you just picked up a couple of those uh, today to add to the stash, didn't you? I did. I have two T-3485s. You know, I had originally planned to build the Yag Panther for the upcoming 48 and 48th build, but one of these might have to jump the line and see see the bench next weekend for a Slammer. Cool. Now we'll move on to Jeremy Moore, uh, Scale Projects by Jeremy Moore. Uh, thanks so much for the social media shout out. Much appreciated. Great episode, by the way. I like the longer format. And we have Jim Bates from A Scale Canadian TV on YouTube. Really enjoying the pod. Wish I was as excited about stuff as 10-year-old John, John Bias. His energy is contagious. You should just put the two JBs near a mic and let them talk. <laughs> that sounds good episode 17 will just be jb and and uh john bias what do you guys think works for me sounds good i haven't met john bias so i i mean we probably have a lot to talk about to get to know each other that's right we <laughs> interviewed him early early on and he was part of the star wars roundtable and you weren't part of that either so you don't let me do the cool stuff you don't do enough cool stuff by that i mean star wars this one's from chris lawson he said i just finished listening and i could have listened to you all talk about star wars models for another few hours great episode i hope we get a lot of the models you guys wish for i hope so too and i second what john said i would love a larger scale ewing keep them coming love the show so robert Martinez wrote in and told us uh that he loves the show especially star wars roundtable you guys mentioned that there was uh, not so much in Star Wars, so much interest in Star Wars dioramas, and here's some dioramas for you guys. So he shared like I don't know, it was like five or six dioramas that he's done. Pretty good work. Yeah, really good. This next one is from Rick Lewis, and he wanted to let us know that how much he's enjoying uh, our podcast, and <laughs> that he also ends up listening to one uh, when he's driving in his car, and then he downloads it again when he gets home, so we can <laughs> get a second download because we. We really deserve it. And uh, he thanked us for it. And, and I know Rick, uh, I met Rick in uh, Enrique, his Discord server that he talked about when he was on our show. Uh, I'm also a member because I support him on Patreon. It's a really cool little community. And um, I've been chatting with uh, this guy, Rick, you know, back and forth quite a few times. And he's a really nice guy. So thanks, Rick. So our next one is from David Brian Bridges, aka DB Stu- Scale Studio. 
he says, uh, listen to the latest episode this morning. We'll finish up uh, this young lady, which he's referencing his newest T-34, which looks great. And he says, another great episode, guys. So, no, thanks, David. We really appreciate the comment. Next one is from Pat Kaiser. Listen to the episode today while out walking the dog. Great stuff as usual. Enjoyed the Star Wars sci-fi discussion. Since you were talking about the lack of sci-fi dioramas, I ran across a YouTube video. This one's from Justin Ryan. Another killer episode. Guys, I really like the idea of slammer models. Giving a name to those quick kits that help bring the mojo flowing again. The current running TIE Fighter group build was just for me. Having seemingly lost my mojo after getting through about it with the shingles. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I hadn't felt like sitting at the bench since the end of January. I'm back in the flow now. Hey, Justin, that's really great to hear. Um, you know, one of the main motivations of this podcast is to drive motivation within the hobby. So it's it's really it's really nice to hear that you're getting back to the bench. And and please please post your progress on on your model, and and we'll uh, we'll follow along. So thank you. And we got another Instagram uh, user here. It's Steve underscore builds underscore panzers is his username. Says that that it was a great episode. It kept him company while he was building up some cabinets in a new flat. He loves the roundtable discussion, says they're fantastic, and he looks forward to having more of these in the future. And John's uh, Slammer build segment took him by surprise, and it really resonated with him into the next day. As an armor modeler, he said he's a bit scared of rivets and cockpit details in aircraft. But as he has a secret crush on the BF-109, he might get one of the Tamiya Slammer kits and uh, give that a shot. So do it, Steve. I think, you, I think it'll be great. I'm glad you uh, appreciated the segment. John did a great job on that. Uh, last one here is from Clayton Ockerby. Hey, guys, I got the shock of my life when I heard your call out on the last episode. Appreciate the kind words from John Bonani. Thought I'd share my latest on the page. It's the Hobby Fan all resin 135th scale LARC, and it really tested my patience. And as fate would have it, the second I started building it, Gecko Models announced that they were releasing one in Styrene. Anyway, keep up the great work and happy modeling team. Thanks a lot, Clayton. We love your work. Appreciate the comments. Now we're on to the segment where we're going to talk about model shows and competitions, because some of them are starting to pop back up, both online and in person. The first we'd like to talk about is the 34th annual NNL West Model Online Show. Entries are being accepted right now through March 31st. It's a virtual contest, and it's the West's largest model car show this year. That's virtual. So we'll have that link on our website along with these other ones. Another contest we'd love to plug is VCon 2021. It's another virtual contest, and it's all centered around the Battle of the Bulge. The other contest, this one is in person. It's MMSI, the Military Miniature Society of Illinois. They're out of Chicago, and they'll be having a show on October 22nd and 23rd, 2021. Uh, the 2020 show was canceled, but they're really hoping that this show will go off. And then the uh, show that's coming up right around the corner is IPMS Roscoe Turner in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's on the 17th of April. That's a local IPMS club one-day show. And then we'd also like to give a shout-out to the IPMS San Diego folks. Their show is scheduled for Saturday, the 5th of June. And then lastly, the IPMS Nationals, as we are all crossing our fingers and hoping that it goes off without a hitch, is August 18th to the 21st in Las Vegas, Nevada. Sin City, bring your checkbooks, leave with resin and plastic. Thanks, JB. Well, hey, guys, what has everybody been working on? I know everybody's been busy and has projects on the bench. TJ, why don't we start with you? Uh, how are things going on your uh, ISU 152? Uh, they're going, so it... <sighs> It kind of sucks because you know, I was like at a breakneck pace um, for the first 
two months of the year and I, I've, I've kind of slowed down a little bit. A lot of it has to do with real life, which sucks, you know, like work's been difficult and I haven't had a lot of time in, in the evening or the drive to want to sit down at the bench, but I have been making slow and steady progress on the ISU 152 that I've had painted for four years, three and a half years. And like usual, I'm like, I'm stuck right before I start weathering, like where I always get stuck. But I'm I'm hoping I can every what normally happens is I'll get in this position. And I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a light bulb goes off and like, I'll just do that. And I'm kind of hoping that'll happen. Um, if not, I still have my Tacom M3 Lee, which is painted. I got to finish building the tracks that I bought for it. I bought uh, the panoplastic tracks and they go together easy enough. You know, it's cutting a lot of pieces apart, which whatever, I can take it or leave it. But the tracks are nice. Then I know I flashed it. I think when we were having a little chat the other night, I might I might start another tie for the group build because I blasted through that first one. And I have the fine molds tie interceptor and, and I've always been a fan of the interceptors and I had a Bandai one, but, and I built it and it was awesome. And I sold it to my friend, so I don't have it anymore. And I would like to have one to go with my tie collection in uh, my display cabinet. So I might crack that one out. Well, going back to your beast, you know, you had painted it in a different style than you do now. I really like the depth that you put into it with the marbling, different colors, and uh, John's rubbing off on you. You even tried some modulation on this for the first time. I did. Well, oh, okay. So it's not for the first time. I've done it in the past um, with some older stuff. And I've done it in Wargaming miniatures in like, you know, Warhammer 40,000 stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm like way out of my comfort zone. And uh, <laughs> the joke I made when I posted on uh, <laughs> on Instagram was that uh, I <laughs> tried the Spanish school, but I think I might have flunked, which I thought was pretty funny. You got a lot of response to that post is a lot of people uh, giving you giving some of them giving you crap and some of them giving you support. Oh, yeah, I actually did. Uh, so that was the first post on any social media platform that I'm active on that I've ha- that I've had over a thousand likes and I don't even have that many followers on Instagram. So I, that was pretty cool. I guess just sometimes the Instagram logarithm chooses you and man, there you go. It's like a roll of dice. You just never know what which of the hashtags is going to decide that it's going to propel and it picked one of mine i don't know which one hey just surf that wave buddy just surf yeah. the wave <laughs> doug you got that model room nailed and you've been working on that uh tie striker right i have actually um almost done i think it'll be finished before this episode drops so hopefully we'll have some pictures on our page of that one done i've had a lot of fun with it I'm trying all kinds of different things to bring out um, a little bit of a metallic look in the in the solar panels themselves. The color I used, I've normally done my TIE Fighters in like a, a blue-gray. Um, this time I went with light gold-gray. I went with a good, just a, a nice, neutral-looking gray, just, just to do something different. Chipping it up, uh, putting a, a kind of an, its own little squadron marking on it because I, I want it to look like it's old and beat up. You know, a lot of... Uh, atmospheric service so so it, it can be rusty it can be it can be weather beaten and uh that's it's been a lot of fun i'm getting close i really like those subtle weathering effects that you put on the solar panels um you know this with the salt and everything it looks really terrific jb you have got a lot of stuff going on your bench yeah i probably have 20 projects at any one time in some sort of progress but some are nearing the finish line 
I have a Len Lease M3 Stewart with a fictitious three-tone scheme that's nearing the end. I just put some pigments on it, so I'm happy to kind of get that one polished off this weekend. Uh, again, it was a slammer build that kind of lingered, so it went against my mantra for slammer builds. The other two I have that are kind of at the top of the list are uh, the U9, so that's progressing. I need to add more tones to it. You know, as I mentioned before, it's it's just a really big canvas, and with a big canvas comes you know, a lot of time and you find yourself treating segments of the model as a model in itself. I did the conning tower and weathered that up, that that came together really nicely. And now I would like to focus on the deck and then move to the hull sides uh, with, with the goal of putting it in a dry dock because it's going to be really beat up and rusty. And then the last build I'll talk about is a VK4502. Uh, you know, it's just a random letter given to a... Um, given to a German vehicle that was designed, I think, during the middle of the war, I think, 43. Uh, Ferdinand Porsche designed the suspension very similar to an elephant or Ferdinand. This build's unique. As I've mentioned in the past, it was it was given to me by Aaron Cook, a friend of the podcast and a close friend of mine. And it was in primer, and he sent it over and was like, hey, have fun with it. And this past weekend, I sat down with, a, with AFE modeler issue number 67. I even messaged Adam Wilder and, and asked him about his scheme. And and try to pull off that modulation look in which he did on his E75. And now the next part is putting on camouflage. I was originally going to go with green and uh, red-brown, so typical German scheme. But again, Adam Wilder comes to the front for inspiration in my modeling. And he did a, a large self-propelled gun that has a interesting scheme, which is dark yellow and then a gray and then a, a light blue splinter. So I'm hoping to pull off something like that on the VK soon. I look forward to seeing that. That'll be really cool. And so I finally got, yay, my Border Model Crusader kits. And I want to give a shout out to a local friend of mine, Sean Earl, here in uh, Utah, who met with me today and uh, brought me one of the old Italeri kits. And I'm going to be doing a side-by-side review of those. And I'll go ahead and post that to our Facebook page. Um, That actually should be there by the time this episode drops so you can get a chance to kind of see what the the new kit looks like versus the old kit. I'm a big, big fan of the Crusaders, as listeners of the show will know, and uh, I'm very, very pleased with what's in the box. It's really, really nice. So look for that review if you're interested in that. also want to give a shout out to our buddy James Skiffins from Just Making Conversation. He's got a Facebook group called the Model Officers Mess, and they are doing on the weekend of March 19th through the 21st, a 48 in 48 group build. And this this has kind of two elements to it. The first is they're trying to raise money for the charity of Models for Heroes, which you've heard us talk about several times here that Malcolm uh, started over there in the UK, and it's a great cause. Uh, So anything we can do to support him, we're excited about. But then the other part of it is you need to do a 148 scale kit in 48 hours. So essentially in one weekend, start to finish. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to participate in that. I'm going to build a fine molds uh, 148 scale tie and get a twofer uh, for a group build, but also for this. And then I think some of you guys have hopped on that too, right? I have. I have chosen Tamiya's 148 scale Yag Panther. It's been in my stash for a while. Pulled it out, had a look at it last night. I think it's doable and uh, we'll let it fly and do it live. I uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to do the uh, Tamiya 48 scale Focke Wolf 190. 
Um, I haven't built an aircraft or finished an aircraft in so many years, and I love them. And the 190 was just one of the prettiest airplanes, I think, ever uh, behind maybe the Spitfire. Uh, but I, that's what I want to do. I just want to knock one of those out. So I'm currently on the fence of whether or not I would like to participate. But I have a couple of things working against me. One, my wife's out of town that weekend. And I have the kids, which they're older, so they're, they're pretty self-reliant, but still. And I don't really have any 48th scale laying around. I have a couple... Star Wars kits, but like I have two 48 scale X wings, but they're like you know unicorns now, so I don't I don't really want to rush through that. I, I kind of want to you know enjoy those and take my time with them. So I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I would like to. So I don't know. Hopefully, I can make something happen. Well, hopefully you do. Um, that'll be awesome. But yeah, it'll be fun on my on my bench. I haven't made any progress on the T thirty four eighty five. Sorry, I'm going to. Uh, group build updates, man, the T3485 group build just continues to grow. We're getting new people almost every day still on that. A lot of new guys um, working on kits, and that was kind of propelled this week by Sprue Brothers. Um, they had a special where they were selling that Ryefield Models uh, T3485 kit for $25. So I think that encouraged a few people to join in on that. TJ, how's your uh, T34 coming along? No change since the last uh, episode, unfortunately. Doug, any progress on yours? I know you just got the uh, model room finished, but any progress on yours? I, I blew some drywall dust off of it. I did buy a paintbrush today. That's about it. <laughs> progress is progress. And then, John, you already talked about you're probably going to be diving into one of those 148-scale T3485s here pretty quick. Yeah, I, I'd also like to mention I made a huge order with Sprue Brothers yesterday. It showed up today, and part of that order was T-3485 from Ryefield, but it's the Chinese volunteer version. So I'm actually thinking of re-entering the fray and building the Chinese version based on a vehicle that I saw over in a museum in Beijing. So super excited to get at it. And then we also have our TIE Fighter group built. And uh, as TJ mentioned, he already finished his uh, fine molds tie and is considering um another another tie fighter so hopefully we'll see that doug talked about his tie striker jb any uh, progress on your interceptor i've moved the box from the floor to the bench so it's it's getting closer it's just a question of when and uh i i will start and finish it at some point soon tj last time um episode 15 uh, you were going to maybe talk about how you see a build in your mind versus how it, you know, the model actually ends up and, and how you deal with those differences. Yeah. So that's like, um, that's an interesting phenomenon that, that I know I can't be the only one that suffers from, from it, that it most recently happened with the Takah Mark one that I finished, um, which again, and I think I even mentioned in the last episode, it's, it's not that it's bad or I don't necessarily dislike it. It's just the way I saw it in my mind when I started the, the project is not how the finished product ended up. And it, it sometimes it can be difficult because you, know, you you post it on on the internet so people can see it and give you feedback. And, you know, especially in like the critique group, like obviously I have critiques on it because it's, it's my work and, you know, I'm my own harshest critic and you get comments like, oh, no, it looks great. Okay, but... I sometimes have a difficult time explaining exactly kind of what I just said, because obviously no one, no one can, no one knows what it looks like 
except for me, how I in, in my own head. And then I am not always the best at like putting that to words or even, you know, writing it down or, or whatever. And uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know. Do you guys ever, has that happened to you guys? I can't be the only one, right? Yeah, no, I, I think so. And and I actually have a question f- bounce back at you, TJ. Have you ever had that happen where you start a model with a vision in your head, but then it goes in a different direction and it actually turns out, although it's different, it actually turns out better than maybe what you envisioned. Has that ever happened? I'm going to go with probably not. And I don't know if that's just a symptom of, of me being me or... I mean, I, I can honestly, I don't think that's ever happened. I've had models turn out better than I thought they would just on a, on a pure technical aspect, but not so much on a, like a, how I envisioned it. It's, if that makes sense, it probably, that's like two of the same thing. So I don't really know if that, that makes sense. It does to me, which probably doesn't matter to most people, but. JB, what about you? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, you know, I would I would point to one of my recent projects, the Martyr Three from Tamiya. I I built it up rather quickly, got the base coat on, and I had a vision. I was going to replicate a vehicle from Rodna's illustrations from one of the Panzerek series from Normandy, and I started to execute the paint scheme, and I put the green on. It looked good, and then I tried to add the brown, and it was just an utter disaster. It looked like I was, you know, I had just re-entered airbrushing for the first time in twenty years. And the scheme just does not sing with me. Instead of stripping it, I essentially wiped the green away or wiped the brown away with with green and yellow and kind of readdressed the scheme and, and just made it work into a you know something that I had completely didn't even think about and just rolled with it and it actually turned out, you know, I'm really happy with the results and kind of did a did a recovery. So I had a similar experience in trying to uh weather uh, an ATST, the first of the two ATSTs that I built. I went to uh, to try to do a little distressing, and I got a little bit of uh, of lacquer thinner on a brush, and I started to go down, and I just I spaced what I was doing, and I got it in some bad spots, and I started removing paint, and and I was really kind of horrified, except I loved the effect that it left me. Um, it, it just, it just kind of made the paint look spotty and, and like layers of, uh, I wouldn't even try to do it again. Cause I can't explain what I did in the first place. And the other thing I did, um, I did this, I, when I was first learning weathering, you know how we all kind of, a lot, maybe not everybody, but I remember weathering started out with all it was, was I was, I was putting a, a watercolor wash on something. You just you cover the model with watercolor, you wipe it off. It stays in panel lines and you can leave little streaks here and there. That was the simple weathering technique that I learned first. And I went to do that on a Stuka. I did a 48 scale Hazegawa Stuka and I put this, I covered an entire wing in this stuff and I went to wipe it off and it wouldn't come off. And I realized I was using oils instead of watercolors. Fortunately, um, I had sealed it with, with lacquer before I did this. So I wiped it off and actually the finish, the finish itself, not just what it left behind, but the finish on the, it put this really nice smooth finish on it. It was beautiful. Those, those two just are things where I made mistakes, but they actually helped the model turn out better than I expected them to. TJ, I, I really like the way that your, your tank turned out, but I mean, 
Is that something where you think maybe two years down the line when you're a little bit more removed from it that you might like it a little bit more than you do now? Or you just kind of think that's how it's going to be and um, it is what it is? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Obviously, I can't ask future me that. I, I mean, the longer I've the longer I sat in my cabinet, the, the more I, I've enjoyed it. Like I don't. And again, like I said before, I don't necessarily dislike it. It's just not what I wanted. You know, it's like you go see a movie and you're like, yeah, the movie was okay, but the trailer kind of made it seem like it would be something else. Right. And that's how that model was for me. It's, it's not bad. It, it's, it's quite nice, I think. Um, but it, it, I guess to, to circle back and answer your question, like, how do you deal with that? Damn it. If I know, I, I haven't figured it out yet. This is because this is not the first time this has happened to me either. This is just the most recent time. Yeah. I, I don't know if someone figures out how to deal with that. Let, let me know. <laughs> Well, I mean, as I've said many, many times, you're your own worst critic and, you know, you do work that, that I think nine, 99% of the rest of us would be, you know, pretty. That's a, that's a little bit of a stretch. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I do, but, but, I, appreciate, but anyway. I appreciate it. <laughs> have you guys ever, I mean, while we're talking about this, have you guys ever taken a model that was in your cabinet that you weren't happy with and just kind of spontaneously pulled it out and, and changed it and come up with anything new. John, have you ever done anything like that? Yeah, that's a great point, Scott. And and I certainly have, I would point to a, to me, a King tiger I built when I was a teenager back in the early two thousands. Recently I was like, you know, I need some frul model tracks and this one's going to sacrifice them. So I stole the frul model tracks off of it for my main King tiger. And then I decided to repaint the Tamiya King Tiger in a scheme that I saw again in a Panzer Rex book. So I, I am not unfamiliar with pulling something off the shelf. And this time I stripped it all the way back uh, to bare plastic. But there are also some builds. You've brought up an interesting point where I'm considering, you know, based on some of the techniques that I feel like I've grown with, where I want to pull out some of those old builds and spice them up a little bit, whether that's using some speckling techniques, some oils, and, and working with that on top of the finish that's already there just to just to kind of enhance it. So I, I would, uh, yeah, I would recommend it for people. It's it's enjoyable to say the least. Yeah. So let me uh, let me jump in on that too. So it's funny that you brought that up because I think it was I don't know a couple of weeks ago. I think I I, think I sent a couple of pictures. I think it was right after I finished the the Tie Fighter and I put it in the cabinet. I, I sent a couple of pictures in the, our little one of our little group chats of Tacom's medium Mark A Whippet. And they're ten centimeter mortar, or it's really a howitzer. And I, I asked you guys, like, what do you think about? Uh, like, I think I could make these better. And it's funny because Aaron was like, "Don't you dare touch that uh, whip it." <laughs> Which actually, I really like. That's the first tank I ever built, and uh, I think I did a pretty good job. But I just know I could probably take that down here to the bench and spend an hour on it and make it better. And uh, because he told me not to, I didn't. So. But I think I might now. Sorry, Aaron. <laughs> You've been wanting to build another one of those, though, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I have the Ming one, but I need to get I need to get um the Tacom tracks because I don't think the Ming tracks are as good, from what I understand. I, they, from what I've heard, fall apart really easy, and the Tacom ones do not. They're they're fantastic. Am I supposed to answer if I've done that? The answer is no. No, I have not. Sorry. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I finish it, I'm bad enough at finishing something that hasn't been finished. Uh, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. 
That book has closed. The chapter's over, huh? That's right. Just put it all behind me. Move on with my life. There's no looking back. Well, speaking of your life, Doug, uh, do you have any digressions for us this time? Well, you know what? I've got beef. (laughs) Do you know how hard it is to organize when you are disorganized to start with? Like I've never been very, I have never been organized with my, with my model stuff. And now I've got this room. It's a big room. It's about 10 feet wide and it's about 13 feet long. I don't know what that translates to in metric, but it's big. And I've got two long tables and a spray booth and I still don't know where to put everything. I built, I built a paint rack and I'm like, oh, this will have enough room for all my paint rack and then some, and I filled the whole, the whole thing up and I don't know where to put the rest. I've got old kits. I still don't have any place to put it. And I need some place to put it. Just saying. That's that's my beef. Yeah, I know that I know that pain. I know that pain all too well. How can I complain? I've got the like one of the nicest model spaces now that I've seen, and I'm still not happy. <laughs> Actually, I love it. I can't I won't see I'm not happy. I love it. I love having a place to go sit down with plenty of light and the ventilation for my booth and Plenty of space to work, and I still don't have a place to put everything I have. IKEA organizing drawers, I would recommend highly for stuff. I will write that down right now. So I would recommend, I think there, is it the Alexa brand? It's, I'll, I'll post a link on our website or our Facebook page. But is it like I that bought, one back there? I don't know if you can see it. It's actually, you're talking about that, that type? It's, it's like that. Mine are, I'll, they're, I think they're Alex, not Alexa. I think they're called Alex. You're yeah. right. My apologies. They're Alex. I'll post the specific version that I have. Mine remind me of operatory drawers for a dentist. My dad had something very similar in his office where they're, you know, the drawer itself is, you know, three inches probably tall. But what's really nice is they're extremely deep and wide. I would also highly recommend for organization within those drawers for tools, brushes, knickknacks, anything. Instead of buying organizers that are tailored for organizing and they try to charge you five to fifteen dollars for them, go out and in IKEA you can find them. Utensil organizers, Walmart, go get them. Uh, utensil organizers are perfect for brushes, Exacto blades, anything and everything. They make things extremely easy. And what I've started doing is at the end of each bench session, I I try to clean up. Dare I say that? And and I found that having these drawers organized properly really makes that process easy and doesn't stress me the hell out when I show up the next day and try to get something done. That's a great point. I find on my bench, if I'm not organized, it impacts how much time I spend on my bench. Because if I sit down and I spend all my time looking for that exacto blade or that saw or that paintbrush, then I usually just call it and you know go do something else. Sweet. Thanks, guys. All right, now it's time for our fantastic interview with Luther Davies of The Mighty Brush. Enjoy. All right, welcome back to the Plastic Closet Podcast. Uh, we have a pretty cool interview coming to you today. We have Luther Davies from The Mighty Brush. If you're a miniature painter or you're into Warhammer, you probably recognize his work. So let's say hi to Luther and welcome welcome to the posse. Hi there. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. 
Yeah, welcome, Luther. It's great to have you. Thank you. So yeah, I'm, I'm coming all the way from, uh, from from the UK, as TJ said, a miniature painter, Warhammer nerd, graphic designer, yeah, gen, gen, general geek and, um, and and scale model fan. And uh, yeah, and, and as you said as well, I also go by the name of uh, the Mighty Brush, which um, some people within the you know the community would would know me as. And um, I have a re- I run a website by by the same name, themightybrush.com. So yeah, that's uh, that's me. Very cool. So I guess to start off, the one thing I had to bring up as a Raptors player and painter myself, and anyone that's listened to our podcast has probably heard me talk about it a billion times. You have probably the most amazing raptors space marine army and i would say that your models alone took an obscure forge world chapter and just kind of like pushed it out there and now you go into a warhammer group on facebook and someone asks for raptors about the raptors they're probably going to see your work because someone's gonna be like check these out how did you get started with that yeah, that's that's true. They, they, I do keep my raptors do keep popping up everywhere, <laughs> uh, which is which is which is nice. Obviously, um, it's nice that people are kind of uh, enjoying them. You know, I get I get a I get a big kick out of that. And yeah, I mean, what what started me with uh, with the raptors really was, I mean, before before the raptors, I was doing I I was also fairly well known in in hobby circles for a Blood Angels army that I built, and that was that was back when I mean, Blood Angels was my my first love with when it comes to Warhammer 40,000 Space Marines, going back to when I was like 13 years old, a friend of mine from school, you know, went, went to sort of visit his, his house and he had some um, Blood Angels and Space Wolves. And I just, I just like, I just fell in love with them. So I, yeah, spent a long time building this Blood Angels army. And as I said, I, be- I became quite sort of well known for, for the Blood Angels. But, and that was when, but the hobby community was a lot smaller. It was still, pretty big i mean you know games workshop's been been big for a long time been around for a long time it was i don't know probably a quarter of the size it is today let's say but within that sort of smaller you know field i was um i was known for for these red armored guys and i spent a few years building the army painting them kind of perfecting how i wanted the the red to look because i was quite particular about even more particular about the red than i am about the green today you know they they were quite popular with the community and and I was sort of recognized for them and um and and then I got into sort of playing the game and 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 I built that army to be a little bit more game focused as opposed to just um you know just what I wanted to paint and so that 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 took me you know several years building the army painting the army playing games and that sort of thing that sort of took me up until when eight, the 8th edition of Warhammer 40,000 was released in I think 2018 I think yeah and at that time that sort of came at a good moment for me, I suppose, because I felt I was already feeling like maybe the Blood Angels Army was kind of complete and I was ready to um to to do something new. And then of course I saw the, you know, the Primaris Space Marines that that came alongside, you know, with eight, with the eight eighth edition of the game. And they so that was like a you know, Space Marines were getting revamped and, and they'd been redesigned. And so I sort of thought, A, I was ready ready for something new. B, at the same time, you know, here were these new looking models. And so I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't sort of think that they, they fit that well with the Blood Angels aesthetic that I'd um, built up or the Blood Angels aesthetic kind of in general at the, at the time. And this was before like some of the upgrade kits and things for them came out, of course. Primaris had a more kind of tactical look about them, which, and so I wanted, I, I was looking for, for how, 
what would fit with those models, the aesthetic of those models a little bit more. So I looked at, uh, you know, there was sort of do, looking around at, at what, uh, what, might, what might fit the bill there. And um, the other thing that at the time there was a lot of discussion about the, the Raven Guard, who are, of course, the Raptors' parent chapter. They seemed to be like, you know, quite hot at the time. People were talking about them being good tactically and when, you know, when the rules started coming out and being discussed. And so that sort of piqued my interest. But I didn't want to, so I, I liked the Raven Guard from a sort of tactical point of view because, um, you know, gaming wise, because they were so different to, to the Blood Angels, you know. So the, the, the Blood Angels are very choppy, close quarters, you know, in your face type of warfare. And Raven Guard, of course, more about stealth, range, you know, more, more, more shooty army. So I, I was keen to try something different gaming wise like that um so that that was all sort of starting to fit together and come together but i i just i didn't i couldn't face painting a whole army of just black i think black art black power armor black space means look awesome look cool i just i just couldn't face doing a whole army of them at the time i wanted something uh it just wasn't you know aesthetically or creatively what i was looking for i suppose so then i started looking at uh successive chapters of the raven guard and then i came across the raptors and it, it was pretty I guess it was sort of like with the Blood Angels before, it was sort of love at first sight. I thought, now this is all coming together. You know, they suit, the aesthetic of the Raptors really suits the aesthetic of Primaris. Tactically, they work with the Raven Guard that I was keen on. And the other thing that sort of just was the icing on the cake was that I I like the appeal of doing green because it it sounds kind of funny, but like green is the opposite end of the colour spectrum to red. So I thought, well... That would be like quite a different color to try and, you know, to work with and to, um, to, to see what I could do with. There was all these things that fed into that decision. It was time for a change, something that contrasted well with Blood Angels, both tactically and aesthetically, and something that worked well with the Primaris Marines. All of those things kind of went into that mixing pot and, and, um, ultimately, you know, led to my, uh, my discovering the Raptors and, and, and choosing to do them as my kind of eighth edition Space Marine army. That's all. That's pretty interesting. That's that was a great answer, by the way. That was cool. So you've been doing a lot of like, I guess, almost like character work, right? For all your recent uh, Raptors characters. So it seems like you have a pretty solid, like, I guess, battle line, for lack of a better term, for your army. And then now you've added these amazingly converted characters. Is there like an end goal? When do you think you would be done with with Raptors? Hopefully never, because they're great. (laughs) And I like to look at them. So thank you. Well, that that that's a really good question, and the the answer to to whether or not I have an end end goal is is, is probably no. It's it's kind of open ended, and and as as is often the case, I think with these kind of things, when with collecting stuff like this, it's um it grows, you know, it's sort of organic. It, it, it changes as you as you go along, or at least for me anyway. And I think for a lot of people, maybe some people have more of a specific setup in in mind or goal in mind, but. I did start off with, I, I bought quite a few models to begin with that I liked. Not only, obviously there was the new primary stuff. So I, I got everything that was available at the time, you know, the starter box that came out. And I was, I'm a huge fan of Forge World as well. The, um, the, the resin kits that, uh, that the Forge World department of Games Workshop do. And I, I love their tank designs. Some of their vehicle designs, I think are really cool. So I did, uh, and I had some of those for my Blood Angels as well before. So I bought a, I bought a few of those and my kind of goal was to, to do the primary stuff and to support that with some really cool four drive models just cause I, just cause I love the, the, uh, the look of them. 
and I still st- I still haven't done those because uh, they're still sitting like right beside me here in this in this uh, in my, my World War Two ammo crate I've got just just down here where I keep my pile of shame because Games Workshop just keep releasing these cool new Space Marine kits <laughs> as TJ will testify to and uh, and yeah they they just get they're just keeping me so busy because I'm uh, I'm just I can't I can't paint them fast enough so at the moment I you know I kind of want to paint all of the new stuff all of the new Space Marine kits at least one or, or maybe two of, of of everything but that's maybe not that realistic a goal I have to sort of see how I get on and it, it might be that I come to a point where the Raptors feels like it's done or I've done everything I can do maybe creatively or aesthetically with it and I'll then maybe move on to another project but but at the moment it's it's definitely I'd say uh, um, there's, there's, there's plenty more to come let's just say that and, uh, and no end in sight I suppose. So when you were kind of developing your color scheme for the Raptors was there anyone or anything you saw in particular that from maybe someone else because there was, there's been a couple other Raptors uh, not so much prominent, but if you were like on, I know you're active on Daka Daka. There's been other people that are like, Hey, here's some Raptors. I know I found some ones that were really cool. I found a, a librarian, a space Marine librarian, the guy with the book, which is a great model. That was one of the first things I saw. I like, man, I need to paint Raptors because that is freaking sweet. Was there anything you saw out there that were like, kind of, you know, gave you some inspiration on how you do yours? Cause yours are very distinct, obviously. Yes, there, 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 there certainly were things that inspired me. I mean, I, I, I made, I made the decision to paint them pretty quickly after, you know, after all those things that we were talking about earlier, kind of crystallized, um, you know, without necessarily looking too much into exactly how I was going to paint them. So I'd already decided, but then, then I did do exactly as you say. I went and had a look, and obviously went, you know, did a Google image search of raptors and had a look at everything I could find, and th- th- there was a decent amount of stuff because obviously, you know. I mean, you've been doing Raptors longer than I have, and 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 lots of other people have, have um, you know, have built armies um, before I kind of got in in on the whole thing. So there, there was, you know, not a huge, not as much as obviously with the the more well known chapters, but there was still quite a quite a bit of stuff out there. And uh, yeah, I remember a few distinct images that did inspire me. There was one sort of small army shot where the green was fairly similar to what I ended up with. I used a bit of brown as well in, in the green for, for shading, which this didn't have. It was more sort of just green, green, but they still, it was a similar tone. And what the thing that stuck out to me though, was the use of blue, bright blue. They had some power, um, power sword guys and some plasma weapon guys, and they all had this blue glow. And I thought that worked really well with against the green. I just loved the contrast of that bright um, glowing kind of blue with the green so that and that's something I adopted into my own my own scheme um, so I was definitely inspired by that and and also as I remember seeing well the other the other accent color I use a lot of is is yellow so again going back to sort of color theory and the color wheel you've got if you've got green in the middle one side of that you've got yellow and on the other side of that you've got blue so it was that then I sort of formulated this triad of of colors between green yellow and and blue that sort of fed into the overall color scheme of the army. And I think, I mean, yellow happens to be, I decided to do the second company for that reason, because with Space Marines, the second company key color is normally yellow. And so that's the same with the Raven Guard. And so that, that all sort of fit together, luckily, because that wasn't really, that wasn't planned as much. But uh, I remember seeing both those colors used on some models that came up in my searches, both blue and, and yellow, and thought those could definitely be incorporated and yes, yeah, so there was there was a, there was a few things. There's, uh, yeah, th- I think there's a lot more 
out there now, obviously the chapter's become more well-known, a bit more popular than it was. There was not as many resources available when I first started as, as there are now, but there was definitely some, some great stuff out there that, that certainly inspired me uh, and I borrowed from for sure. Yeah, I'm going to have to go ahead and admit that I borrowed using yellow on my Raptors from you because okay. I had originally used red. I didn't like it because it looked too Christmassy, obviously. And it was, wasn't was much, but it was enough to be like, yeah, I don't really like that. Even a red stripe on, on like a sergeant, I was like, that doesn't, it doesn't look right. And then I saw yours. I'm like, oh yeah, yellow makes sense. Even if they're not second company, because mine, mine are mostly fourth company, I think, just because I like the Roman numeral four, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, thank you for that, by the way. No, no problem. Yeah. Well, I think I wasn't the first, you know, I did actually take that from, from, from someone else, but, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, and that was... I'd, I'd got, I'd done so much red, like with the Blood Angels. I mean, I really, I really went to town on like perfecting this red. I had, I had this really strong idea for exactly the kind of red I wanted to do. And it, and red's a kind of tricky color. And green, of course, like I was saying earlier, it really contrasts with red. So I was sort of knew that I was gonna, gonna not include really much red in this army. So I definitely uh, steered away from it. And that's the danger of it. Like, as you say, you can easily use green and red together. It, you know, it, can maybe work in certain things in certain situations, but you can quickly end up looking Christmas Christmasy. So yeah, uh, yeah, I decided to stick with uh, you know the colours either side of green in, in in the spectrum there. So yeah, tell us about being featured on the Warhammer community website because to anyone that's that's into Warhammer and Games Workshop stuff, as interesting as it is, because there's a lot of love and hate in the fandom. Like like most fandoms, people you know they're mad at games workshop for whatever pick a reason who knows but (laughs) at the same time they love games workshop and and i know for me personally if i was featured on the warhammer community that would be a huge honor as angry as i get at games workshop and how much money i have to pay to buy their awesome stuff i get mad at while i do it but do it anyways I, i know to me that would be amazing how did that happen do they just reach out to you i mean obviously you're pretty well known so i would imagine probably wasn't hard to find you um, well, I, I think to be honest, I, I probably became a lot more well known because of that, you know, after that. So, yeah, I mean, it, firstly, yes, it, it was, it was obviously a, a huge, a huge honor. You know, it was a, a definitely a, a highlight of my, of my hobby career, shall we say, to be, you know, it's nice to get noticed like that. And eighth edition coming out and primaries coming out and me, me starting that army. That was like a real melting pot of excitement around the hobby and uh, a kind of reinvigoration of Games Workshop and Space Marines and Warhammer and everything as well was going on at that time. So I think, I think the, uh, I mean, the Warhammer community as a, as a thing, I think was pretty new as well then, because that was really where they started doing a bit more, you know, social media work and that sort of thing. So I think they were probably on the lookout for, to see what people were doing with the new models and stuff. And, And I guess I got, you know, noticed you mentioned earlier Daka Daka. I'm, I'm a couple of forums that I was I was on quite frequently, and um, uh, I guess forums like were, were really well used for sort of Warhammer discussion, as opposed to now. Of course, there's a lot more social media stuff. Probably, you know, so less then and, and a lot more now. But I think at that time already, social media was getting pretty big with with Warhammer stuff, and so I, I'm not sure exactly where they saw my stuff, whether it was on the forums or. Uh, are on social media but the fact is you know the guys that everyone who works at games workshop pretty much everybody 99 percent of, of people at least they're all hobbyists themselves and they're all participating in the in the community as well so it may have even been a single individual who just sort of saw something i posted and thought that looked interesting and and, and it was a an interesting use of the new models i guess 
and yeah, so they re- they did reach out to me, contacted me, uh, and said, you know, that they 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 like what I was doing, and um, would I be interested in being featured on the uh, on the community website? To which, I, of course, I bit their hands off, and yeah, I was <laughs> uh, <laughs> delighted to uh, to do that. So yeah, they just asked me to kind of um, you know ask me some some questions about it, and I wrote down some you know some answers to that, and wrote a little piece that they then edited and posted up on their website and um i uh, i had to re-photograph everything um for that because i always use a dark background for my or i usually use a dark background for my photography because it sort of goes with my like more slightly more grim dark and grittier kind of aesthetic but they they needed it you know everything on white that's just their their kind of style so i I did need to re-photograph everything on white but that was, that was actually quite nice to get everything out again that i've um, sort of put in the display cabinet and and re-photograph it as a whole because I had a sort of yeah at that point I already had a, a fairly cohe- a small but kind of cohesive army you know reasonably sized small army it would be actually great thinking about it now it would be great to to do that again because now I, the army's got to be three or four times that size at least now so it'd be pretty cool to uh, to get it out and do a do some army shots again actually maybe I can yeah find out when the when's the anniversary of that of that Warhammer community article and do it for that what's there yeah i think that um that did make me, me more well known within the community as well obviously because that's a, a big you know um, got quite a lot of traffic to, to their website of course and probably got the raptors in general to be more well known by by them kind of promoting um, my army in that way uh, i think that probably opened people's eyes to some of the lesser well-known chapters that are out there that uh, that only really at that point some of the kind of older hobbyists or the people that had been in, in in that kind of game for a bit longer knew about actually at that time. So your Raptors army um, that anyone that's been on social media has seen amazing pictures of, has it hit the table? Do you play with that army? I do play. Well, I say I do. I suppose more accurate to say I, I did or I have played with the army because I have like since COVID, you know, I've not um, been able to get any any games in. That's been very difficult over here. So yeah, nothing in the you know nothing in the last in the last year, unfortunately. Uh, although of course that has allowed me to like add to the army, collect some more stuff, and get some more stuff painted. But yeah, I mean when when the eighth edition of One Four Thousand dropped, that was I as well as like everything we talked about earlier with the Primaris Marines and um, just the whole reinvigoration of everything. You know, the rules was another thing that was reinvigorated. And I really like what they did with it. They simplify it become very bloated, very complicated. You need a lot of books and how they interact with each other was confusing, et cetera, et cetera. So they really cut it back and simplified it. And I thought that was great. Not everyone agreed, but I think most people did agree. It was it was a good move and the game was was better as a result. So me and a friend actually make or, you know, again, pre COVID, make an annual trip to the what what's called Warhammer Fest, which is a a thing that Games Workshop put on every year and they show all their new stuff. And there's, well, there's all sorts of great stuff that goes on there. And they have the Golden Demon competition there and the display and everything. So we got a look at, there was one of those held for the launch of the of the new edition. And we went along and we got to see how the new game worked. And I was very excited by it. I thought it was great. So yeah, I was, I was excited enough that I really wanted to, it gave me new you know impetus to play, a new inspiration to sort of play and so yeah, got a lot of games in early in, and, and and the Raptors, my Raptors did did quite well. I mean, at least compared to my Blood Angels, which I never really had much luck with. Partly why I wanted to like change tactics with this new army. <laughs> you 
you know, I, I like the idea of chainsaws chopping people up, but I never could make it work uh, in the on the tabletop. So uh, yeah, the Raptors, yeah, they did pretty well. I was, I'm, I'm not, I, I like playing the game, but I'm not, I'm not very good at it. Is uh, the best way to say it, probably because so yeah, it was like a. I was looking at, I think, with I got a few games in and it was like 50-50 wins, losses. But for me, that was a big improvement. So, yeah, I got a few games in like that. And, and, and just, yeah, even though it was, I wasn't like killing it on the tabletop, I was really enjoying it. So that was, that's all that mattered to me. And then I, the last, actually the last game I played with the, with the Raptors, um, so obviously before COVID hit and everything, was, was a really good one because... A friend of mine from um, who's more local to you guys, um, at least he's from the States, he lives in, in the Boston area. He visited me in the UK because he wanted to come over and visit. He wanted to come to the Forge World Weekender, which is another similar event to the Warhammer Fest, but specific to Forge World. He's big into the Horus Heresy and uh, 30K stuff. So he came over to visit and we went together to the Weekender. But before the day before we did that, we arranged a 2v2 game. So me and him played with my Raptors against two of my friends who played with one of my like arch enemies in the kind of table in Warhammer, uh, who's got an L, well, he used to be called Eldar, now called Eldari, I think. He's got Eldari army. Um, So it was my Raptors versus his Eldar army and it was a 2v2. We played it at Warhammer World, which is at Games Workshop's headquarters in Nottingham, which they had also expanded it made the gaming hall much bigger more tables and you can you can it's free to go there and play and you can get a table and they've got really cool scenery and everything so it was a whole big you know event it was it was really good fun and we and we smashed it we we smashed the game we um we really did a number on those um pointy ear guys <laughs> <laughs> i brought out the uh the leviathan dreadnought which is uh, tj will know that model from, from forge world uh the forge world resin dreadnought model and he did really well was shooting down these um eldar planes like uh like nobody's business so yeah it was uh it was really good that was a really memorable game like having a friend over from the states and we were going to the you know to the weekend there and we and we got that game in and it went really well for us so so yeah they they have seen the tabletop and they've seen some action and they've seen some victories bit of a hiatus since then when things sort of start opening up again and gaming becomes a little bit more easy, uh, I do plan to, um, to to definitely get them back on the tabletop, for sure. So you have not played uh, Ninth Edition yet? I've not played Ninth Edition yet, that's right. Um, I've, I haven't even really got to... I've had a quick look at some of the rules changes and things, but not really got under the skin of the of, uh, of, of the rule book yet, even for, for Ninth. So yeah, so it's going to be quite different now when, when I do manage to get back into it. Um, I, I will say, so I've only... I've played eight. That's when I really started to play. And then I have played some knife. I have one friend that I will see on occasion because he works from home. So he's never out. I really like it a lot. We've been playing the crusade mode, which as someone who also is not very good, like I'm terrible at this game, uh, but I love it to death. Crusade is amazing because that's what I've been painting all my Raptors for is for my crusade is, you know, it's like a progressive campaign. And, and as someone who's more interested on the fluffy side of, of Warhammer than the, the math hammer side, it's been a boon for me. Like the, the launch of ninth was really what made me want to finish quote unquote, finish my Raptors so I could play them in the crusade. And it's funny that you, you mentioned how shooty they are. I actually play mine more as a close quarters uh, or close combat oh, okay. um, yeah. army because 
spoiler alert, close combat Space Marines in ninth edition are really, really good. So I shouldn't and, uh, have the Blood Angels then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Blood the I so apparently the new Blood Angels supplement or whatever is really good. I, I I don't know. I've only ever played with you know my Raptors, but from what I've heard and seen, they seem to be really good. Yeah, so it, it's just kind of interesting that you know I you know I also chose Raptors based on they're stealthy and and long range marksmen and all this stuff, and then you actually I tried to play that and I'm like yeah this is actually really hard. I'm just going to go punch these Necrons, you know, with a power fist instead. Well, I guess having said that about the range and the stealth, I mean, the thing about, I mean, that's certainly true of Raven Guard, the parent chapter, and, and it's kind of by extension, therefore, true to, to Raptors. But the Raptors are kind of more actually about being tactical. So it's right. kind of, they are you know, very adaptable to the type of warfare that's at hand, you know, so that makes sense too. That I think doing doing them in close combat is still, is still fluffy in, in that respect. Yeah, that's the way I I kind of headcanon it. Like they're they're going to do whatever they can to win the battle, right? So yeah. if the blade guard, all decorative guys, if they have to show up and get the job done, then they're going to show up and get the job done. Yeah, with sword and shield. Yeah, Where's and the- plus they look they look those are those models are so awesome. They're they're so great, and I, they're probably my favorite my favorite unit. And in my crusade, they're actually really powerful because they've got a couple upgrades or whatever. Yeah, I still, I'm still yet to paint. I do love the models as well. I'm still yet to paint mine, but they are on on the list. And it, yeah, it's again, it's these things that are t- keep taking me away from you know the Bandai stuff and the Star Wars stuff. But uh, there's, there's so much, uh, there's so many cool kits. But I'm getting there. And so yeah, I mean, both with you know painting that stuff up and uh, and then you know, hopefully getting some games in of ninth. I mean, that you, I'm glad you said that about it because it's um, I'm excited for when I can finally do that again now. Luther, before we move over to the Mighty Brush, I'd like to just hit on one thing and bear with me. There's a question in here somewhere because I'm not a gamer, really not been introduced to Warhammer whatsoever. I have two tanks that were given to me. I'm a huge scale modeler, but what I love to see in your work is the translation of techniques between both hobbies and specifically focusing on your Raptors, your painting style it's just really great. I, I enjoy the tonal variations and, and I love when you talk about color theory. And I, I like to see that more and more come over to the modeling side because it's such a powerful tool. If you could describe that painting style, you know, for reference in the hobby side, we, we like to call it modulation or the Spanish school where there's very accentuated gradients and punchy tones. How, how is that referred to in the gaming world for, for us modelers who are not familiar with it? How it's referred to, um, it'd be in the in the kind of it's it's less of a common technique, I suppose, in the kind of gaming gaming world. I mean, air, you know, airbrushes have of course become a more common tool um, in the last few years in in the gaming scene. They've airbrush has been a common and popular tool in the scale modeling scene for obviously of course a long time, and that's more recently found its way into uh, into the whole gaming world. So I think. I think the freight, you know, the, the terminology of, of color modulation is also something that's kind of becoming a little bit more well known. Where it's maybe a little bit different, or has been up to now, a little bit different between the kind of those two, those two different communities, I guess, is in the in the scale modeling world. I think that sort of work is usually a bit more subtle, and in the hobby um, spectrum, it, it tends to be a bit more high contrast because. You know, we're obviously dealing with like, you know, a sci-fi fantasy setting and, and Warhammer 40,000 in general is a kind of, you could describe it as an, an, 
an over-the-top, you know, setting. Everything's sort of larger than life. I mean, you've got these walking churches and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So walking church, cathedral kind of fortresses, I should say, or, you know. So it's, it's all like larger than life and, um, and, and, and some of the aesthetics are like that as well. So, so what you kind of see is if people are using airbrushes to do gradients and color modulation and that sort of thing, you, you often get more extreme contrast from dark to light or from, from color to color. But what I've tried to do is what I am always trying to really do is, is kind of marry those two things to get, find a kind of sweet spot in the middle between those things. Um, so, I'm trying to, I suppose, bring a bit of the subtlety that you see in the scale modeling world and the realism into the, into the hobby world. And from the hobby world, bring a little bit of the, yeah, some of, a bit of that kind of over the top or, or maybe more kind of artistic aesthetic, for want of a better phrase. Um, by that, I suppose what I mean is in scale modeling, you're, you know, you're often trying to, you're trying to recreate something real world. You're trying to make something look very realistic. And in, and in, in the hobby world, you, you kind of, you, you're wanting to make it look more, not, not, not real world and, and more fantastical, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm trying to sort of, um, marry those two things together. That's my kind of, um, I'm not the only one doing that, but that is kind of where I'm, I'm conscious of, I'm consciously doing that. And that's kind of my aim with my, with my style and my work is to sort of, yeah, try and bring those two things together. Yeah, no, I, this is actually maybe a good segue in, in how you communicate bringing those two worlds together. You know, TJ turned me on to your website, The Mighty Brush. Maybe, maybe you could take a moment to just talk about, you know, how old is the website and what, what kind of content people can find on it? Sure. Yeah. Well, so the, the Mighty Brush has been going for quite a while now. It, it started life as it's been going as pretty much as long as 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 long as I've seriously been kind of painting in in the you know in the Warhammer world, which is I dread to think how many years now. Quite quite a few. But it started out as uh, as just a blog, really. It's, it was it's just a blog. It was just a place to to post my work and to you know get feedback on that and. Um, and maybe even have a little discussion, you know, with, with comments and things like that. And that was uh, in big part because at the time, I didn't, not, no one sort of in, within my kind of close friends or family or anything, no one was really into this stuff. Um, the, no one, re- no one was sort of into the into the hobby or wargaming or Warhammer or anything like that. So I didn't have anybody kind of face to face to discuss it with, you know, uh, or to or who'd be interested in in my work. So I, I, I really wanted, you know, once I've done something, instead of just it sitting there and, you know, me only seeing it, I wanted, of course, to share it with people. So, you know, forums back then, before this became a, a big thing on social media, as again, I was, I was saying earlier, forums was a good place to do that. But I also wanted a kind of, it made sense for me to have a place, a home for my, from all my stuff, you know. So that's, that's how the Mighty Brush began. Um, and just as a, a, a kind of anecdotal thing, it's the name the mighty brush came about because uh, because of uh, there's a there's a there's a british i'd be very surprised if you if you guys are very surprised if you guys had heard of it but there's a kind of cult classic british comedy tv show called the mighty boosh which i'm a huge fan of um it's kind of yeah like a culty thing it's kind of quirky and uh, yeah it just really appealed to me and, and some of my friends so the mighty the mighty boosh became the mighty brush for me that's kind of where where i picked the name for it uh, right at the beginning yeah, so that's how kind of that that that's that started, and as well as po- just posting my work, I started you know trying to get into writing a few articles as well, um, you know tutorial 
type stuff and uh, just general well yeah mainly tutorials really uh, and not on um, whole schemes but just um, a little interesting aspects um, that I was discovering especially when I kind of got into airbrushing as well and little tricks and things that uh, I picked up along the way and wanted to kind of document and of course it's great the Mighty Brush as a website has grown it's still it's still got everything pretty much as that it always had but I've just added more and more bits to it um, so a few more articles uh, and of course, more recently, I've, I've, I've started doing the PDF tutorials that I have an online store on there that I, I offer those through, um, and, and the water slide, uh, transfers that I've got on there as well. So it's, it's gone from, from, from blog to online shop and is now kind of both things. And, um, there may be other things that it becomes in the future as well. We'll see. Nice. Yeah. I certainly, you know, I've been exploring it. One of the articles that stands out to me and you hit on it a little earlier is how to paint blood angels. I think red's a really hard color to pull off, at least in, you know, in the scale modeling world and the, you know, the free article that you have on here uh, from about five years ago really does a great job walking through, you know, using white. And then what caught my eye is your implementation of yellow before adding the red and, and that, that, that just really stuck out to me, and I hope to try that on some scale models. So I would recommend any of our listeners to go check that out. Um, in addition to your free articles, I see that you have PDFs on there, and I also bought one of those, um, specifically the Ultramarines. Um, you know, can you walk us through you know, how, how you decided to create the PDF? Because, and I'll, and I'll caveat that in a sense to, to give some frame of reference that for modeling articles, uh, they're very linear and they're very, um, you know, almost cookbooky, and they they give a limited perspective. Maybe that's the best thing to say. Where I find on your PDF, you know, it's I, I love it because you're giving every angle and really talking about the technique. Um, so maybe if you could just talk about uh, your, how did you go about creating those? Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, I'd probably. Describing how that came about, as I've sort of done with the other things, it's like I, I, I kind of keep going back to the, be- the beginning, you know, how it came about from the beginning. And, and what well, you, you mentioned it there, the, the Blood Angels tutorial, because that was, you know, the, the, that was the first one I, I did. I did some sort of mini tutorials around that same kind of time on like, yeah, like very specific things. Um, but the Blood Angels was the first whole scheme that I wanted to, you know, document in order. And that was because I got. I got asked about it a lot when I was doing the Blood Angels. Um, I got asked very frequently, "How did you do that red? What paints did you use for that red?" Um, and actually, same thing with the Raptors later as well. It was a, a very frequent question, and I did then also add a free article on how I did the Raptors, which was even a little bit more in depth than the Blood Angels one, but not quite as in depth as the PDX. And, and the Blood Angels scheme, I, yeah, as you say, red is tricky. It's funny. It's an odd color, and I think it's. It probably gets very technical. It's to do with how light bounces off it and how it goes into eyes and, you know, the, 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 the transparency of the pigment, all this sort of thing. But it can easily, there's this sort of sweet spot with red. Either side of that is too pink and, I, and the other side is too orange. And I was just, I wanted that pure red, what I would describe as a pure red. And the best way that I, I found after lots of experimentation, in fact, there was a local hobby shop that I was buying my paints from at the time. I was buying all these paints because I was doing this experimentation and I, I eventually I bought a, um, a Vallejo uh, carry case from them as well because I needed somewhere to put all the paints. And the, guy, the, the hobby shop was quite local. I was shopping online with them, but they're actually quite local to me. And the guy came and hand-delivered the Vallejo case because, <laughs> and he asked me, he said, I, I wanted to sort of like see what you're up to because I don't know why anybody would need so much red. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and was very intrigued. So we got chatting and I uh, still buy stuff from them now. Because, yeah, I just was going through so many different reds. And yeah, I, it took me a long time to find, you know, a recipe that really worked. And, and, and you mentioned the yellow, the yellow, I call it a, a filter. It sort of acts as a, you know, transitional color. And I found that, so that particular, the red that I use there, which is the Vallejo Model Air, I think it's just called red. And uh, it was, it, but it was, it's a slight, it is a slightly pinky magenta red. And I found that just over white on its own, it, it did look a bit too pink. And so I, but it was also transparent. So, or, you know, semi-transparent. So by using yellow underneath that, you offset that, that magenta or pink aspect to it. And you get just that right sweet spot between not being too orange and not being too pink. So that, that's the beginning of, that was why I, you know, I thought that that was, Having spent so much time figuring that out, I thought it was a great thing to put that, you know, put that down and document it, um, uh, you know, and uh, do something with all, all of that effort. So, and of course, to, you know, then when people are asking me, which was happening a lot, I can just say, go and look here, go and look here. Um, so I wrote that, that tutorial and, um, and I quite, you know, enjoyed that, that process. Um, I found that that came fairly naturally to me, just documenting everything in a quite a structured way maybe even a bit of an OCD way to a certain extent. Cause like you were saying, I, I kind of, I go into a lot of, I'd make sure I cover like every little detail because I want to, yeah, try and make sure whoever's reading that or now whoever's looking at the PDF guides, I, I just try to preempt any questions really and make sure it's kind of all there. And I do, I do get questions of obviously, you know, people buy the guides and they have questions about this or that and the other, but I think for the most part, people find that those guys really do tell them every, everything they need to know to achieve that scheme. Yeah, I was, I was, I was definitely, you know, moving from those slightly more basic articles that are still on the website there for free to the PDFs. I really wanted to uh, to develop that aspect of them and make sure that just yeah everything was covered off. So um, you know, I have in there, I. I I list out at the front, you know, every single paint that's used in a kind of easy to use reference area. So if pe- people are sort of checking if they've got those colors or they maybe need to put a shopping list together, they've got an easy place to do that. And then just trying to make sure that, um, you know, I show uh, for each step that I do, I show the model from lots of different angles and uh, and also just try to describe things very, you know, very, very clearly and in, and in detail, really. So So nothing's, you know, missed out. That's the kind of approach that I've um, that I've uh, taken with them. Yeah. So I just got a comment on that. That's what I love about it is that you're explicit, not only in the material that you're using, but how you're applying it and the technique that you're using. And and for reference on the modeling side of things, I I tend to think modeling articles gloss over those things where they say I used flesh color paints to paint the uh, highlights. Well, what did you do exactly? And there's like this. There's this mystical kind of thing going on behind the curtain. And then all of a sudden it ends up on a picture where your PDF, like you mentioned, it's explicit. And then I love how you show every angle of the miniature as well. So you're given those six views, high resolution. And overall, Luther too, I have to compliment you. You can see your graphic design because it's, it's, a, it's a really aesthetically appealing article as well. It could easily pr- be printed in a book. So um, kudos to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, my my day job is, is is graphic design. I do unfortunately still have a day job. Uh, <laughs> <in> it, <laughs> like, Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? If we can't just like paint uh, paint minis all day. <laughs> um, well, some people do, but uh, the lucky ones. But um, 
you know, one, you know, that's actually one of my, uh, one of my dreams is that for the Mighty Brush to become, you know, my full-time thing, maybe that will happen, but yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I digress. So my, my, my day job is, is graphic design. So I've got, I've got, uh, I've got quite a background in graphic design and, and also web, I do a bit of web design, a bit of graphic design. So, so that obviously, yeah, that, that gave me the tools and skills to be able to produce those, those PDFs in a, in a, you know, aesthetically pleasing, clear, concise, well-designed, well-structured way. And with the website as well, I was able to build that myself. And I mean, it, it, the Mitosh website's changed forms a couple of times through its lifespan, but I've, you know, I've built it and sort of rebuilt it and added things to it over, over, over the course of, of that period. And, and uh, Mike Rinaldi, when you had him on the show as well, was saying similar thing that it, it not only, you know, helps with putting together training materials like this, for which it's obviously uh, useful, but it also does feed into, um, you know, the hobby itself and, and, and the actual painting aspect of the hobby itself and, and, and colour choices and, and colour theory and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I would say that uh, that, that, um, that design background has been pretty influential in the Mighty Brush uh, as a kind of brand and, and, and the products that, that we do. And also, yeah, my, my painting style as well. I have a question. Regarding on, on the website, you have some beautiful articles on, on different things. And one that stuck out to me was the uh, photography, photographing the uh, miniatures. And a lot of people have a, have a hard time taking pictures of stuff. I see some what may be beautiful models, but it's hard to tell because the lighting's bad or just bad angles, whatever. Um, what, what kind of advice do you give to people that want to photograph their miniatures or their models? just to to make their uh, presentation better yeah that is uh that is a big a big topic and a big subject and 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 definitely something that i've been interested in and and explored over the years and, and developed as well my sort of skill set because i really didn't have any experience in that at all even you know i didn't really come across much photography kind of work in my design stuff um beforehand so i did i did have to learn that from the ground up but it was something i was quite motivated to do because you know, I, I was spending a lot of time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, which is partly why those PDF guides are so detailed. And, you know, I spend a, a lot of time on, on my models I paint, you know, even like tiny, you know, 28 mil scale figures. I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, getting really detailed on them. So I, did, I didn't want to waste all of that effort by not then being able to show what, I, what I'd done. It was important to me to be able to get a good quality image of them. So I, I, I quite early on, I got a, a decent ish camera I, I sort of you know rather than just using a phone well i mean back then phone cameras weren't even very good they're a lot better now it wasn't a proper dslr it was a um it was a kind of compact slr or dslr it was it didn't have a separate lens or anything but it was a reasonably good camera better than just a sort of you know point and shoot type of thing um so i got that and i experimented with you know some uh, little light boxes and just just cheap ones really to start with and and, and lights and things like that which 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 were fine for the for the time, and I was able to get some sort of pretty decent uh, results. But my my more recent stuff, I've upgraded because now the Mighty Brush is not only a hobby but also obviously a business with with selling things. That I was able to justify, you know, investing in some some more equipment. So I have actually got now uh, a proper SLR camera with a separate lens uh, and a and a bet much better light box. And in fact, I need to update that article. It's been on my list of things to do 
which is quite a long list, I'm afraid to say. But yeah, um, I want to update the article to just, to go into the same kind of level as, of detail as I do with the PDFs on the photography side to, to the degree of, of the exact settings that I, that I use. So that's, yeah, on, on the list to do. So the, the, the guide that's there at the moment is, gives a pretty good idea of, of how I, you know, achieve the photos that, that are seen on the website. Uh, it's going to be updated soon um, with, uh, with even more detail and, and, and new equipment. I'm looking forward to that because I, I know you've probably seen it too. And I know everyone else probably has, but it seems like a lot of people think photography is like some sort of dark magic, right? And it's, they see great photos on the internet and think they can't replicate that, but really you can, it's not to sound like a douchebag, but it's not that hard. If someone lays it out for you simply, like it is hard. I mean, I'd say that, you know, it's not, but, once you figure it out, it, it becomes easy. It's something that no one really, I don't want to say no one talks about, but a lot of people don't talk about. And a lot of people that take really good photographs never really fully answer. And I, I don't know why my photographs are okay. And I'm free to tell anyone how I do it. And I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing. So yeah. So I, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I hope you kind of bump that up to the top of your list of things to do. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is a priority. And you're absolutely right. What you, what you were saying. It, it does feel like a dark art. And I think that's because it has a kind of, it is certainly its whole own world, if you know what I mean. Like, it, you know, it's just like painting techniques are things that you have to learn or airbrushing is something, you, have, you know, it has, a, it has a learning curve. Yeah, like any new uh, tool or technique or whatever material. Photography is just like that. It's its, it's, its own thing. But yeah, as you say, like once, it's, once you've broken that barrier, then it's just a matter, you know, once you know, the base or the principles of it and you know like the right settings to use and, and why and how those settings work then yeah it's pretty easy and it 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 was difficult for me, especially when i i mean learning the proper cat learning how to use the, the slr camera was a bit of a head scratcher because there's lots of uh uh, you know, technical stuff that goes into it and i, I bought a book that goes with the camera that i that i bought and i you know i read through that whole thing and um, but so there's there's a huge amount of stuff in there, but really it does boil down to just a few core things. And yeah, once you've got those down, then it becomes just easy. So that's what I want to try to impart in the updated version of that guide. I'm going to sort of cut out all the fluff of which, you know, the, there's loads of it and it's useful for maybe other areas of photography, but cut out all of that stuff and just get to the specifics of what people need to know to take photos of miniatures specifically. So yeah, that will uh, that will be coming soon. Let's talk about one other thing on uh, the Mighty Brush that I don't think has been mentioned so far is the decals that you offer. Sure, sure, yeah. So that's become yeah quite a big part of the of the Mighty Brush in in recent years uh, or the last couple of years, and that came about that did come about from a fairly specific place, um, which was basically that. Um, in fact, it, I, this, this again goes way back to the Blood Angels. Um, when I was still painting Blood Angels, I remember seeing somebody posted, I think it was another Blood Angels model tank or something. And they had these nice little like sort of text block script things. Cause with, with, you know, one 40,000 uh, for the listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with that world, it's, it's all, it's all very kind of gothic, you know, it's futuristic, but, but also sort of got a kind of, yeah, really gothic kind of aesthetic or feel to it. So, this tank had these kind of, you know, scripty type markings 
which I thought looked really cool. I really liked it. So I asked the painter, you know, where he got those from. It turned out that it was from an, even at that, it was already an old and out of production transfer sheet that Games Workshop had produced in probably the 90s, I think, for the Witch Hunters, the, is the kind of army that this belonged to. And so I went off hunting for, for those and uh, and I found some luckily on eBay. I, I, they're very extremely rare. They were rare even then, extremely rare now. And I got them actually for a, for a decent price. And I think now they're like gold dust. But um, so I got them and I loved them and I started putting them on all my stuff. And then, I, but then I was, you know, I had a finite amount of them. I was running out. So I thought, what, you know, what can I do? And then and that's what sort of prompted me to kind of just explore the possibilities of, of, of making transfers and decals. And uh, again, you know, same as with photography or airbrushing, it was, it's a, it's a learning curve and it's its own, it's a, its own world. And, there's uh, lots of lots of options out there and, and ways of doing it, and of course, you know, you can print your own on just paper that you put into a printer at home, but they're they're not great and to be a bit kind of fudgy, uh, and of course, it's difficult to do metallic or white or anything like that. So, the ultimate thing solution that I found was um, was screen printing. That's the the best way really that I found to uh, to do this stuff. I think that there's. Um, some probably some modern technology that you can run decals off, you know, that some of them maybe the big manufacturers use um, to run these things off digitally or whatever. But you're, t- you know, you're talking tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of pounds with that sort of equipment. So uh, that was definitely not an option for me. So, but screen printing, I had some experience with through um, education many years before doing, you know, design and art kind of stuff. So yeah, we were able to sort of get something, get something going in that regard. And, you know, early prototypes were not as, you know, great as the, as the final product ended up being. Um, but what we have available now, what we've been able to achieve, it, you know, we've had some really great feedback on them. Lots of the, the hobbyists that have bought the transfers um, told us that they, they really like them, that they're comparable to some of the, you know, professional, you know, all the bigger well-known brands out there that have been producing them for a lot longer. They're comparable in sort of ease of use and quality and all that sort of thing um so yeah i was finally able to you know it came about from really you know wanting to be able to produce the things that i wanted to use on my models i, I wanted those little script things and i couldn't get any more so I, so i made my own and then i thought well other people might want those too and in fact yeah people did ask me where did you get those so um that that's kind of how that came about it was making the stuff that i wanted and needed and then other it turned out that other people wanted and needed that stuff too and so we've expanded the range and we'll continue to expand the range you know we've got lots of just generally useful things like for, for warhammer lots of like roman numerals sort of mark marks and that sort of stuff so we, we've done sort of that kind of thing and hazard stripes and um we'll probably do some more um you know generic things as well that might be generally useful like check marks or um you know chevrons and li- little things like that that um that, that's useful to just have a sheet of, you know, in the in the arsenal um, for doing, you know, that kind of thing. Nice. Thanks for that. One thing I did want to ask, us modelers are familiar with water slide decals. What I saw on your website, you talk about um, there's an all-over transfer film decal and you have a red X on it. And your decals are a shaped transfer film. Can, can you just expand on exactly what that means? Yeah. So um, there's various ways to produce transfers. There's that kind of, you know, there's the paper you can buy, as I was talking about earlier. And there's also printers that are called ALPS printers as well, which oh, is yep. Alps, yeah, used for printing decals. 
in in both those scenarios uh, and also like there's some there's some lower cost digital um, hardware out there as well that can produce decals even in kind of white and maybe even metallic i think but in all those scenarios which are, i explored all of those scenarios and did some experimentation with them all the transfer film is is all uh, is is already on the sheet you know when you get the paper the um, the cat the transparent carrier film is is all over the sheet already and you're printing on top of that so what you then have to do is cut carefully around the icon and you know it, it, it's just a little bit tricky to do that but what you see with um with the way we produce ours and uh and also a lot of the um you know the, the major brand kit producers like wallet games workshop tamia you know bandai the transfer film is uh, is is already shaped around the icon so you don't have to you just cut a rough square out and you can just slide that thing off and and that a makes it just tons easier to use them but b you can also be quite clever with the shape of that you know you, a lot of thought goes into the shape of those of those things because you want it to have you want it to want it to avoid holding on the corners and things you want it to have the right kind of tensile strength but you know you're always looking to minimize that transfer from as much as possible so you want to use as little of it as possible but enough to get you know so that you don't have those issues as well so again another learning curve that we sort of needed to overcome and another thing that graphic design um how that came into play with all of that but um but that's basically what that means is other people sort of refer to it as just the transfer being pre pre-cut on the sheet or you know shaped transfer film or die cut is and you know other terminology you can use to describe you know how that works nice thanks for that talk to us about uh who are your painting inspirations wow yeah there are a lot. Uh, there are a lot of inspirations because, uh, you know, I have been doing this quite a long time. I mean, you know, so those inspirations have kind of um, grown over the years, I suppose. When I first kind of got into painting seriously, for want of a better word, uh, and this is way back, you know, in the Blood Angels days and things like that, there was a couple of YouTube channels. And I think probably YouTube was was it was probably in the earlier days of, of that medium for the hobby stuff. But there was a, a, a chap called Lester Bursley. I don't know if uh, yeah, you, you guys are familiar. Oh, yeah. His channel used to be called Awesome Paint Job. I think he then sort of updated that to just Lester Bursley Miniatures. And I don't think he's been as active in recent years, but he used to be he used to be very prolific with awesome tutorials and great, great work. I love the aesthetic of his stuff because he had a very kind of grimdark feel to it, very gritty, which is what appeals to me. Yeah, he did. He was a he was a huge inspiration, especially when I was getting into airbrushing because he was a kind of master. I think he, his background before hobby stuff was that he was doing things like like airbrush artwork on like you know motorcycle gas cans and things like that, or and even maybe in the military before. I believe so. Yeah. So um, so he was already kind of yeah like I think he in fact I think he was one of the major players to bring airbrushing into the into the wargaming kind of field actually. And there was another guy who was based in Poland called, his channel was called Buy Painted. And I think it was called that because he was sort of doing commission painting. But he put out a lot of tutorials and was very skilled. And he also, he was one of the first people I came across who was doing that thing we were talking about earlier, where he was bringing in some of the, some of the techniques that you see more in scale modeling world into the wargaming world, like things like chipping you know some chipping techniques i remember he was using on some of his you know warhammer tanks and that sort of thing which all of this stuff just like my eyes were lighting up because it was all new to me but i just it was like i knew that's what i wanted to do with my stuff as well so yeah they were some they were a couple of early influences there was also there still is actually a website massivevoodoo.com 
there's a few guys on there who, who, whose work I love, uh, Roman Lapat, uh, Raphael, Ben, Comets. Those guys are uh, always, yeah, they they've, uh, do some amazing work and um, I'm a big fan. More recently, because those guys have been doing that stuff for, for years and years and years, still going as well. And more recently, um, Craft World Studio, uh, Marco and Alexandra, I really love what they do. They, they're a couple and they both miniature painters, I think full-time miniature painters. And what's really interesting about them is they have this really distinctive house style. So they, they both paint with a similar style. You can tell they're painting apart. You can tell Marco's from Alexandra's, but they're also quite consistent together. Like they have a unified style and it's, it's, yeah, it's, I'm not exactly how, sure how they've achieved it, but it's very impressive. And just, I mean, technically, uh, and artistically, like their use of, of color, like that, they're, they're masters of sort of using colors that you wouldn't expect, but when you see them, they just work, you know. So, um, big, big fan of theirs. Also, there's a couple of sort of big names in the in the Warhammer world, and you know things like Golden Demon Competition world as well, like Andy Wardle from Cult of Paint, uh, Richard Gray as well. Big fan of their work, you know, jaw dropping stuff that they do. Spain, you've got Angel Giraldez, Alfonso Giraldez, Bohun as well. Uh, some painters that I really admire. Uh, Mig Sula as well is a guy that uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but he does a lot of stuff on, on Instagram. He, he's got this, he's a little bit different to these other guys I've been talking about um, because he's, uh, he, does a, he does what we call in Warhammer um, vernacular, grimdark. It's very grimdark, very gritty, very like really builds on that whole gothic aesthetic, and uh, again uses some of the uses a lot of weathering techniques and you know chipping and um, enamel washes and oil washes to really dirty everything down. I'm a big fan of that sort of style. I'm sort of like still like getting my confidence with with the weathering and and that sort of thing, like how much of it to add. Um, whereas he really goes to town on it, but it, it you know it. It just looks great. It's, it's definitely, it's not too much. It, it, it looks perfect as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, from the, from the non kind of Warhammer world as well, there's uh, Mike Rinaldi, who we've obviously already talked about. I've got a couple of his Tankart books, uh, which I've read cover to cover because like going back to what we were saying earlier, my, my desire to bring some of that sort of realism and some of those techniques into the kind of hobby world. I, I think, you know, he is a master obviously at that stuff. I'm, I'm not been able to achieve the kind of same kind of realism, but it's um, it, I'm trying to bring elements of it in. So I'm I'm a big fan of his and I found him very influential. And one of his influences as well, actually, Phil from Forge World, uh, Phil that works for Forge World as a miniature designer, um, who I've met a couple of times at um, some of the Games Workshop events, and he's a really nice guy. I mean, yeah, he he showed me he had a uh, one of those events. He had a Forge World tank that was. It was just yellow. I think it had been painted yellow or white, maybe. Uh, and he demonstrated the hairspray technique on it. So it, it had already been uh, it had been sort of base coated in like a very dark brown, whatever. And it had the hairspray applied and had the top coat applied in the light color. And what he was doing was just as a demonstration, he would just wet that paint a little bit. And he had a very soft brush and he would very lightly go over some of the corners and things. And it would just like come to life. And I chatted with him. It was just incredible. And I chatted with him about it. And, uh, you know, I was sort of saying, oh, yeah, I've, you know, I've been, I, I like doing that sort of weathering and um, those kind of techniques. And I've been, I'd, I'd been experimenting with, um, with sponge shipping a lot at that time. 
which I still I still do that on my vehicles and and yeah he did say that you know yeah that's that, that works as well but you can't get the fineness of scratches with a sponge as you can with the, with the hairspray if you do the hairspray technique right and that's a learning curve on its own but but uh, yeah so as the, you know I've got a lot of respect for I don't know how I, I should have asked him really like I don't know if Mike knows but like how he actually figured that out and what made him think of using hairspray animal I don't know uh, you know, I, respect for for him for 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 that for like developing you know techniques and obviously he's done some great just scale modeling work in its in his own right and and as a designer as well some of the vehicles he's designed for Forge World so yeah he's um, he's a, a definite uh, inspiration for me and and another guy I'm just going to give like an, an honorary mention to another chap as well who I know TJ is familiar with um, Alexandre Duchamp who does uh, he does a lot of he does a lot of diorama work historical scale modeling work um but also he's he's a big fan of the um, machine and krieger universe he does a lot of those sort of sci-fi kits and he does a lot of um like very realist he does a lot of real realist sort of work he's he's developed a lot of techniques for getting like these real um realistic effects and and the funny thing about him is that he and i actually were colleagues years ago we worked together at a design agency in london for couple of years probably but at that time neither of us knew that the other did any kind of hobby or scale modeling stuff because we were just like there for our day job and we just it just never came up which is just bizarre but um it was only you know we stayed in touch after we left that job and then we just each discovered later that we both had this kind of um we shared this uh you know this passion for this stuff so i, I think i've been quite influential he's influential in terms of like the amazing stuff he does with realism and everything and I've actually managed to influence him to pick up some Space Marine models in in recent days. So he's he's not finished anything yet, but he's made a start on them. So I might have um, got him hooked on uh, on Games Workshop. We shall see. Yeah, his uh, his Machine and Krieger style is it's really interesting because as a Japanese property and the the type of material painting materials they use in Japan that like Lincoln Wright always talks about, it's all lacquer, lacquer, lacquer. Like everything's lacquer. He uses almost, I think, only water-based acrylics. I don't. I have a couple of his PDFs. Yeah, I, I want to say most of it is just water-based acrylics, which is not what you normally see in that. And um, that I think that's really interesting. Yeah, he's um, it, one of his passions is kind of like is developing techniques. Like he likes to experiment and come up with things and different ways of doing things and. One of the things that surprised me about his work is like he doesn't use he doesn't really use airbrush that much. He does sometimes use it, but he does you know when you look at some of his um, uh, some of those those suits um, from the MAK universe that he does, there's a surprising amount of that is just is just hand painted, and you wouldn't be able to achieve that without it being hand painted. It's like the airbrush base coats for for that would be too smooth, and it needs that. He's able to achieve quite a nice mottled effect, you know, and a lot of tonal variation that you would probably normally achieve with like you know we, we might in, in in scale modeling achieve with with using enamel filters i guess you know to add tonal variation but his is more like that he's hand painted that and it and it's got a unique look to it for that for that reason and it's uh yeah definitely a unique style so yeah i mean he's since discovering even though i knew him from before since discovering that he does that stuff and is into that stuff he's become a huge inspiration to me yeah, quite quite a long list. There's, there's obviously that's not everybody. There's there's plenty more, but um, uh, yeah, th- th- there's a few of the sort of people whose uh, whose work that I love for sure. Awesome. So 
how do you choose your next project? What what kind of process do you go through? Or is it just something you see and you just kind of, you know, light bulb moment, you just want to do that? Yeah, it's basically exactly what you just said. It's usually that. It's usually uh, I see, you know, because I look at, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always on in, well, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm looking at um, other people's work, you know, of which there's just an amazing amount of high quality work out there. And I'll see something and I'll think, oh, yeah, I really want to have a go at that. Or I want to try painting that model or that style or that color. So that's that's a big way in which I would, you know, that, that influences what I, what I choose to do. But there's a couple of other things that kind of rein me in sometimes. Um, well, time is one thing that reins me in. And the desire to obviously keep building my kind of Raptors army because I've, I've got a lot of models that, um, that I want, that I plan to add to that army. So I'm trying to every, you know, I'm trying to alternate with doing something for them and then something else. And then, and then of course there's, there's the guides. There's more, lots more guys that I want to do. I'm, I'm working on a, my first vehicle guide right now. In fact, I'm kind of coming towards the end of painting the model for it. And, uh, and then I need to, you know, they'll put the actual guide together and, and write it all up. That's been a long project. I, I knew it would be because bigger models always take a long time, but also I wanted to cover a lots of different techniques. And this is actually going to be what, what I hope is going to introduce some of um, the kind of wargaming and warhammer um, audience and some of the people that already sort of follow my work and, and are aware of my tutorials, introduce them to some of these techniques that we've been talking about that the scale model guys just know like the back of their hand, you know. Um, so that means by that, I'm well, the hairspray technique is one thing I'm covering. Sponge chipping, um, you know, enamel washes, rust, streaks, streaking grime, lots of things like that. Um, so I kind of I've used more techniques and effects and things, and also dry pigments, whether in powders, that sort of thing. I've used more techniques than I probably would have. If I was just painting that model for myself, I wouldn't have used as much on it. But I wanted to do, in this PDF guide, I want to show people, give people lots of options. Show that the, here are the techniques, you know, and if, if you don't like that particular technique, just skip it and use something else. You don't have to do everything that's in here. So that's my goal with that one. So it's a little bit different to, to, to the ones that have been done previously. But uh, so that's coming out soon as so I've got a chance to sort of write it all up. And then, of course, I, I do get a lot of requests as well for because I've done these space marine guides. Well, one of the things was um, I did the nine first founding loyalist chapters for the, for the guides. And then when I posted up the kind of group shot of them after, um, in fact, my dad made me a plinth to put them on as well, which is pretty cool. So I put them all on this plinth, took photos, posted you know, here's the culmination of this project of doing all these guides. And the most asked question was, where's the other nine? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's only half of them. Because there's, uh, and again, for the guys that don't know Warhammer, there's, there's nine, the original Space Marine legions, there were nine, well, there was 10 actually, but one of them sort of got lost and not known about. So there was the, half of them were, were, were loyalists and then the other one, the other half were, were, the traitors, you know, they were the bad, the bad guys and fell to chaos and, and that sort of thing. So I've only done the loyalists so far and everyone's asking, what about the traitors? So that, you know, I, I, I do want to do those and uh, that's get asked a lot. So, so that of course does influence going back to, you know, the question of how, how do I choose projects? Well, it, that's one of the things like what, what people want to see. So I, I, I want to do those. And then there's a few other chapters as well that I'd like, now I've done the, the, the the most well-known chapters from the loyalists and I'll do the traitors. There's other chapters that I just really like the look of, especially some of the other, like the raptors that TJ and I do. 
they are one of the Forge World chapters. And there's a few other pretty cool ones as well, like the Red Scorpions. And there's also successor chapters to the original ones, like Flesh Terrors from the Blood Angels. And some of those chapters that I would like to, to cover as well. So there's kind of, there's no end to the scope. There's, there's a long list of like plans and things I would love to do. And that's why it would be great if I didn't have a day job, because then I could spend all my time doing this stuff. <laughs> but at the moment, yeah, there's a bit of a, a, t- a time constraint on it. But, uh, you know, I'll just keep doing stuff. And um, once this vehicle guide is out, that's, that, that's gonna, that has been a big one. That's taken me a long time. I think then when I go back to doing just sort of single, single uh, miniatures, I'll be able to put some of those out more quickly again. And then get on to some of the other, and um, you know, th- and that's that's all just Warhammer, and um, you know, there's there's things outside of Warhammer and Games Workshop I'd like to uh, to look at as well. So yeah, uh, I think I'll be doing this for a long time yet. T- tell us a little bit about finding your personal style and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, so that is something quite specific, I, I guess. Um, I mean, I, by that I mean that I did have a kind of aesthetic in mind with my my games workshop stuff which is that it was i wanted to do something on the more again in games workshop or in warhammer terminology it's grim grimdark so that means you know darker grittier grimdark basically means more representative of the horror of living in the 41st millennium that 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 universe sort of presents which is very contrasting to games workshops official um, models that they show you know on their website so they're painted by what's called the heavy metal team, you know, the studio painters, um, who are all I'm friends with a few of them, and they're, they're extremely talented guys, and they do amazing work. But but these, what's shown there for the you know for the box art and that sort of thing, it's quite a clean, quite brightly coloured aesthetic. Whereas what appeals to me and lots of people really in the whole Warhammer world is is this darker, grittier, more kind of weathered look. So that's one thing that was an important aspect to what I wanted to do but it's it's actually taken me a kind of long time to develop that because I just it I guess the the issue with it originally was being a little bit scared to make the model kind of dirty and damaged you know like especially like if you do one of the ways to achieve that a, a lot of the time is is actually to start with that nice clean model and then really dirty it up that's one of the ways to do it um but then once you've painted and spent quite a long time painting this nice clean model it can be a little bit, you can be a bit hesitant to then like, oh, I'm going to mess it up if I cover it in dirt and grime and everything. So it took me a while to sort of get over that. And I've, and I think I've steadily been going more and more in that direction. And, you know, one of the guys that I mentioned earlier, Migsula, who you can, you can check out on, um, on Instagram. He, he's, I think he's got a really good balance of that. His stuff is quite grim dark and quite weathered and quite damaged looking, but it doesn't look over the top. It's not like he's sort of a, you know, you can't tell what it is anymore because it's that damaged or dirty. So yeah, that's one of the kind of, um, you know, pivotal things. And I, th- I think m- my style's developed in that direction over the years, but I, I think it's still developing. I think I'm still not quite there yet, I would say. So it's, it's kind of a, a work in progress, let's say. Do you, uh, do you ever work on anything, paint any models that are from other properties, other subjects? I haven't done much. I'm I'm sorry to say, or ashamed to say, really, because I would like to. And it's again, it just really comes comes back to two things we've already discussed, which is one, Games Workshop keeping me so busy because they keep releasing this stuff faster than I can paint it, and I really want to paint it. And, and again, the, you know, the quest for things that I, I do want to try to um, 
to do, especially if like I get a lot of requests for one particular thing, you know, I, I try to sort of bump that up the queue in terms, if, as long as it's something that I want to paint, you know. So, but yeah, I, I do have, I do have, I've got a stash of kits from other, other companies. I've got some, and I know you guys do a bit of this work as well, some Star Wars kits, some of the Bandai Star Wars kits. I've got a 144 scale Millennium Falcon. Uh, the Bandai one, and I got some upgrade bits for it as well. I got the round dish for it and the lighting kit for it, but it's still in its box. Uh, and I've got, I think, uh, an 8080, because that was always when I was a kid, 8080 was um, one of my favorite vehicles. And in fact, Star Wars, it's interesting about Star Wars, because we've just talked about style and things like that. I think Star Wars is actually one of the major influences on my style and and that sort of the thing about the thing that I loved about Star Wars as a kid and still do today is that what they did aesthetically with those models in the film and, and with the kind of um, the setting of the film, it had this lived in and, you know, realistic appearance. You know, think that, that all those models were, were, were really nicely weathered. They look really realistic as opposed to some of the other things that were out at the time and have come out since where, again, everything's a bit more kind of clean. So I think that that was that aesthetic was quite influential in my in my style. So yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a digression there. But yeah, I've got some Star Wars kits. I've heard a lot of good. I've not built any of them yet, but I'm, I I will do. And um, I've heard lots of good things about Bandai in terms of the production quality of those kits. And Games Workshop kits are good too. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on uh, on some of that. Also, the, the the machine in Krieger that we talked about earlier. I've got a couple of those kits as well because I I think that's a, a nice interesting and different kind of aesthetic in terms of the design of the of the vehicles and the suits and things um so that's one thing that i'm definitely planning to do and then more on the so there's those are kind of you know again there's that's all sci-fi vehicle stuff i also quite keen on some of the more kind of fantasy type stuff as well for example um there was a kickstarter a little while ago for these uh camelot models which i I backed and uh, and I think they're sort of going to be shipping soon. There's a really cool Merlin model with a kind of eagle on his hand. So um, that's one that I'm, I've got coming my way. And also there's these dwarf models. I think they're like, they're, they're bigger scale. They're sort of uh, 72 mil kind of scale. So quite a bit bigger than the games virtual ones. And there was a chap, these are sculpted by a, a Russian chap and uh, there was a Facebook group um, when he um, when he sort of put them together and uh, I don't think that they're not they're not very well known at all but they're beautifully sculpted and I, I ordered those and they arrived and I was very impressed with the the level of the resin models that incredibly detailed and beautifully sculpted but again they're just sort of sitting in my little box down here by by my side all wrapped up in bubble wrap waiting to be done but yeah, these are all things that are on my list, uh, you know, and at some point, my list is long of things I'll, I want to do and I've got to do and sort of committed to. But at some point, I'll probably stop adding to the list and I'll start getting through some of these things because I do really want to get onto some, you know, non-games workshop stuff, and some of this Star Wars stuff. And uh, yeah, it's going to it's going to be fun. So um, so yeah, the answer is that um, I don't, but only because only because of time constraints and, and, and I really would like to do some other things. Totally understand those Bandai Star Wars kits are fantastic. Uh, oh, I built man, quite so a few good. of them, and I I will keep building them. All right, I I have one last question for you, and that is how important is the social media platform like Instagram and uh, others for finding inspiration for you? Uh, hugely, to be honest. Yeah, Instagram in particular for for inspiration. 
because it's obviously it's a very visual platform and I, I do what probably lots of people do is I actually have a couple of different accounts you know I've got an account that where I just you know I follow my friends and that's all like pictures of food and dogs and things like that and then I have my hobby account where I follow all of you know all of these people that I listed earlier and many many more as well yeah I just I, I go I switch that on uh, just on my phone and I just go to that account and I just I, I just start flicking through and it just it, I can't help but be inspired if I do that you know it's like it's a it's a never fails as a source of inspiration just um you know just go scrolling through that stuff so sometimes I'm I the only time I avoid it avoid doing that is if I'm kind of really really busy if things are take if real life which of course happens to all of us takes us away from this hobby that we love doing I I don't go on there because then I get jealous of everybody who's, in, who's doing their <laughs> hobby and I can't um, so sometimes I then don't look, but, but no, when I'm kind of in the zone and I'm, I'm feeling in, in, inspired or motivated, I go on there very frequently, you know, like pretty, you know, every day stuff. And I just think and it, it's, it's incredible, you know, the, the quality of the work that people are putting out and the ideas that people are coming up with. Um, and, and Instagram's great because and I think Mike also mentioned, Mike Rinaldi, when you did the interview with him, mentioned the same things that you can. You can create albums on there for storing stuff, which I find really useful. I do that a lot. I, I've got like a, an, an, an album for object source lighting and I've got a, an album for weathering and I've got an out, al- you know, all of these different things. And um, it's a great tool for sort of grouping stuff and, and reference and, and going back to it's, it's brilliant for that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure my fellow co-hosts are tired of me talking about Instagram, but it really is the best. I can't personally sing its praises loud enough. The fact that there's so many talented people out there that you wouldn't otherwise never know about because there's a, a fair amount that is they're more or less only on Instagram that I found like even they're not even active on Facebook or, or Twitter or I mean, forums are more or less dead now. I mean, they still exist. I'm still active on a couple, but not not like I used to be. But it's just this wonderful tool where you can find amazing and talented artists that are just doing their own thing that you would never otherwise know about and i i can't just get over the fact that we live in the future and this exists and you know if someone even told me when i started this and there was like youtube and as a warhammer guy there was daka daka and youtube maybe the bolter and chain sword that that was it if you wanted to find out about warhammer th- that's where you went or wanted to see miniatures that's where you went now you just go on instagram and you know hashtag warhammer and you're face is bombarded by the most amazing things you've ever seen and like it's it's almost overwhelming yeah and it's it, what's good about it is is how you can easily tailor it to yourself so you know for ex- exactly what you want what you're looking for what you want to see my instagram hobby account is is because that's why i'm doing a lot of you know the games workshop and spaceman stuff is like quite heavily geared towards that but you know i mean you could you could start other accounts for other subjects and and just follow people that are doing those subjects and you'll just see so much stuff that you wouldn't have found otherwise. Um, it's, it's really very clever, to be honest, and quite a unique platform for, for that kind of thing. I mean, it's uh, as, a, as, a, as a resource for inspiration in what we do, scale modeling and, and this hobby, it's, uh, it's probably the, the best thing that there is out there at the moment, I would say. The most, the most accessible and, and kind of, yeah, the most abundant as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, sometimes it's frustrating because it's more phone optimized but then at the same time it also makes sense because 
again, we live in the future and everyone has a smartphone for the most part. So it makes sense. The only thing I wish it was, it was equal on a desktop, you know, or even a tablet. Like it's not optimized for a tablet either. It's optimized for your phone, which I appreciate. Yeah, I, I must admit, I, I only ever use it on my phone. Right. Uh, to be, I mean, with social media, I'm kind of like that. Any with, yeah, I'm I'm usually on my phone if if I'm on any kind of social media. Then the thing I use desktop for would be more like um, forums, which, as you said, that's a bit of a dying dying breed. I'm still on Daka Daka every now and then, and uh, Bolter and Chainsword, and so yeah, I tend to. They they're good for the desktop environment, but uh, but yeah, I'm a, it's probably because Instagram is not geared towards the desktop so much I, I just don't go on there on my on my laptop or whatever i'm just but you know that does mean that like you know you can sometimes you know wake up in the morning don't have to get up straight away or last thing at night i can just be flicking through and it, it does make it quite accessible you know once you've once you've got set up on there and you've got it on your phone it's um, easy to kind of dip in and out of one of the questions i think we haven't hit on and i'd love to know more about you know, you've you've really perfected great PDF guides and a lot of article material. Have you considered going over and creating some video content? I have. Yeah, it's been. I've get asked that question fairly um, regularly, and yeah, so I've I've thought about it and and considered it, and and it is something I'd like to do actually. At first, I was a bit unsure about you know how I would move from what I was already doing into that sort of world, but I'm sort of like I've warmed to the idea. I think I could could do a good job of, of that kind of content and and I think I would enjoy it. So yeah, I haven't sort of committed to it yet. It would require basically just, you know, me having that free time to to plan it properly and, and get kind of the setup sorted. But you know, I don't think really that's that difficult to do. I've got the equipment and everything to do it. So it, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah, definitely something I'm seriously considering for the Mighty Brush in the sort of medium term future, I guess. Awesome. Maybe a Patreon page at some point. I, I think if I do videos, then that might be a good platform. Yeah, I guess I haven't. That's one thing I haven't really decided is whether I would just do a YouTube channel and make those videos public. And and if I did that, whether they would be more kind of like uh, short and sweet, you know, more kind of tightly controlled subjects, maybe. But if I was going to try and do something, if I wanted to like replicate the kind of depth of detail that I cover in the PDF guys in video form. Those would, of course, be quite long. And then, um, yeah, Patreon might be a better platform for that if that's the way I go. And to be honest, thinking about it now, that might be a, a good way for me to go because that sort of matches the kind of content that I'm doing already. And there's probably already a lot of the other kind of content out there. There's lots of sort of short and dirty quick videos, which are great, you know, for, for doing things. But there's probably less of the, uh, I mean, and as you were saying earlier, like with hobby tutorials in general, there's less of these like very sort of detailed and specific step-by-steps that show you everything you know so that would be i guess the challenge is like yeah how would i show that in in, in video form but uh, i think that could be done i've overcome many technical challenges in this kind of hobby so i would be uh, up for giving that a go cool i certainly look forward to it well luther uh thank you again for joining us uh it was a it was an honor to have you here and to get to talk to you and as someone who has followed you for a long time and interacted with you on social media. It's uh, it's really personally been an honor for me. So I want to thank you again for your time. And uh, thanks for coming on. Well, likewise, thank you. Really appreciate you inviting me on. It's been um, really enjoyable to come in and talk about this stuff. And it's been great to meet you guys. And yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and uh, talk about this hobby that we all love.
Great. Yeah. Specifically, thanks for me, Luther. You know, you really introduced me to a lot of new techniques already just, just from the, you know, just stumbling on your website. And uh, I look forward to new content from you. And, and thank you again from us at the Posse. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, guys. Well, I hope you guys really enjoyed that terrific interview with Luther, TJ, Doug, and John did an awesome job. And man, I thought it was really fascinating uh, to hear his thoughts on color and painting and techniques. So great job on that interview, guys. And hopefully we'll have Luther back on the show again. He was a terrific guest. Yeah, well, that'll do it for episode 16. You know, as always, thanks so much for listening. I want to echo Scott's comments with a very special thanks to Luther Davies. I really enjoyed the conversation and I can't wait to talk to him again. Coming up in episode 17, we really have a special guest, super, super great guy, very talented modeler, the AK master modeler, Rick Lawler. We know him, some of his iconic work that we're really going to discuss and really understand what makes him model, what makes him, you know, bring so much life to his pieces that can tell a story in a very, uh, you know, simplistic presentation and really hit home and bring really powerful subjects into the world of scale modeling. So please, uh, you know, look forward to that in episode 17 in a few weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay happy, and happy modeling. Take care, guys. See you in a couple weeks. See y'all. See you guys.